<laughs> on that note, here we are with Paul Ferris. We are greatly honoured. I've watched The Wee Man a couple of times now. It was one of Wildman's all-time favourite movies. I've watched Paul's other podcast, mesmerising story. And huge thank you for coming on, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. So yeah, I've been honoured with the first question today. Oh, Patrick... have you? <laughs> I never, no, I never normally get it. Right, so cool, cool. I'm pretty honoured. So Patrick Bergen, who plays Arthur Thompson, the godfather in the film mm-hmm. Wee Man. Um, you had a little story about him you wanted to speak I, about. I, I did. I, I actually stayed in the same uh, hotel near the film studios with Patrick. He does like a drink. A lot of people like a drink. But on this occasion, we were sitting out in the foyer in the hotel and... Uh, there's no great secret about the fact I do like a puff, right? So I'm outside, I'm having a puff. Uh, Patrick Bergen's walked to it because the patio doors is open. And he sits down and says, you smoking that stuff, son? <laughs> and I went, yeah, I'm like, do you want a put? Yeah. So I've rolled him one and then went upstairs uh, to the hotel room. And by that time... Uh, when I came back down in the lift, the doors were open quite surreal. The the, the lift doors was open. <laughs> Patrick Bergen's there. And I said, all right, Arthur. And he's went, no. <laughs> I said, what's wrong with you? Can I get another smoke? I went, all right. So we went outside, but the patio doors were shut by this time. And we're working with seven having a cigarette. And I've asked him about his past career. He's, he's got a phenomenal CV. Uh... And then, and then I said to him, what, what is your position now? He said, uh, half drunk, half stoned. I die tomorrow, son. I went, what? <laughs> he says, I die tomorrow. I went, what do you mean you die tomorrow? Arthur's dead in the fub. And I, it's his character. So then I've asked him how many movies he's been in and how many times he's died. And he went, oh. This will be the twelfth. <laughs> <laughs> Every movie's Andy get killed or he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people criticise the fact that he's Scottish, no Irish. But the when Ray Burdus uh, and uh, Carnaby done the movie, it's a, a global audience. Glasgow people would notice the difference. Uh, is it is it something we we could have changed? Was it with my, my, my control? But Patrick, to meet somebody like Patrick Bergen was, was fantastic. The only problem was when he finished the, 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 the smoke, he thought the patio doors were still open and bounced off them. Oh, no. and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he nearly was dead the next morning anyway, but that was his character in the pub and, and bowed out. Great. A nice guy to talk to as well. Big name yeah. uh, to get in. Uh, so fair play to Ray Burdus and Carnaby for dinner. And the actor playing you was uh, Martin Compton. Um, I know him from Line of Duty, massive fan. I do, I do, well, I, I knew Martin. Uh, I never knew of him. I knew him before uh, uh, another movie he'd done, Sweet Sixteen. Uh, great movie, brilliant. And then uh, when the Ray Burdus was doing the casting, that he mentioned uh, Martin Compton, and I met. Martin a few times, he's a very, very professional actor. Uh, it's just unfortunate during COVID uh, that we never tied him down to another deal. 
because he, he's then moved on to BBC. He's brilliant. He's he's got all these different things that's going from he's he's the BBC guy. Does it does he want to go back and play me? No, no. So there's a new six part series that unfortunately Martin won't be involved in. But what he done was an absolute credit to to the film. Uh, I went on set, on set a few times. Had a good chat with him. Very clever, very funny guy, and a good Celtic supporter as well. <laughs> so we had a, a great bit of fun. Wish him well. Uh, a lot of people were saying, Paul, surely he could do the second part. He ain't a friend of mine. I've known him socially through the uh, through the movie, and I wish him well and do what he's done. So you said you've got a six-part series coming? Uh, there's a potential six-part series coming up, yeah. It's called uh, Reign of the Underworld. And what we have got is it's, uh, Jack Pepper Media. And I asked the owners, why do you call it Jack Pepper Media? And it's took between uh, some of the Rolling Stone stuff and the, uh, the Jump Jack Flash and uh, the Beatles, the Jack Pepper. Or, or whatever it is. So they put the two of them together. It's actually Brian Anderson, who's a renowned photographer, and Ian Jeffries, who was the understudy to Ray Burdis for all the works. So what they've looked at is total six-part series that's going to come from Glasgow, Edinburgh, Newcastle, Liverpool, Manchester and London. It will start for the 70s, come through to the 90s so that'll be like, like series one something I'm interested in for, to develop myself because uh, to be part as a consultant and, and do what I can do oh wicked right. so for our international audience then who are not familiar with your story Paul just to set the stage a little bit the back, your background growing up in a wee man I was particularly moved by your relationship with your father mm. what was it like growing up where you grew up and your relationship with your father uh, well I was born in, in Glasgow in Huggin Field Street in 1963. Uh, my dad, uh, as, as I was growing up, had two uh, single-decker buses where... My dad was a Protestant, my mum was a Catholic. It was kind of taboo <laughs> in Glasgow. It was, like, it was like a mad thing that was going on. But my dad, and because of the, the football fixtures... Celtic would be playing away one weekend and then Rangers would be playing another weekend and then he had these uh, his private trips to like the Vatican <laughs> uh, weddings and events, all these sort of things and my job was to clean the bus but but to clean the bus was to sweep it out and and, and I remember one day uh, because we lived on Huggin Field Street which was four in a block uh, housing uh, when you went further down it was a deprived area I, I was lucky that, that my dad was working full time he had his things and accidentally uh, when I was cleaning the bus one day there was a one of these seats that was not put in properly and I thought I couldn't push it in click it so I opened it and found two or three quid then I thought there must be more in this. <laughs> so my job was right up at the back of the bus, flipped all the seats up, 
My dad used to give me 50p for cleaning the bus. I had maybe three or four quid. <laughs> Never declared that. Uh, so I, I was kind of... Uh, I, I remember as a, a, young, uh, a young guy, maybe less than 10 years of age, playing football. Somebody kicked the ball and it stuck onto the fence and went... Pfft. I said, don't worry, we'll go and get a new one. So we went into this post office shop and the lady behind it, can I keep saying, we want cola cubes, we want this. And she's putting them all up and she's looking at me and said, and who's paying for this? I went, me. She did what the money and put it up. So I did have a, a very, very good upbringing uh, until I realised that uh, when my dad went missing, my dad was a, uh, an armed robber. And when he vanished off the scene, I used to go and visit my, my gran at lunchtime and I get toast and beans. And then mum came back. She was a, uh, a worker, a cleaner in the, uh, the, the, the hotels and the hospitals. And I get toast and beans again. So I was associated. My dad just lost the toast and beans. That was just a mad thing that came on it. So my dad could spent five years in, in prison, but the, the upbringing was, it was great. We knew everybody, it was a, a great community. Uh, and then a lot of nonsense st- started at school. So uh, for, for the ages of 10, uh, probably till I was about 12, there was a lot of severe bullying going on. Told that when I lies to my mum. The... I fell downstairs, upstairs. My black eye wasn't really a black eye. Then just nonsense. But it made me very, very vindictive. That brings us to that scene that upset you and upset Wild. Oh, when the dog gets your dog gets stamped on. To to be fair, when I I read the script uh, with Ray Burgess, Ray confirmed this. But what what he done in the script? When I first read it, I had to stop it and say, Ray, I love dogs. It's a passion. Why have you put that in? Remember, it's a film, it's not a documentary, it's not a docudrama. He's using it as a thread. And he said to me, the the reason why he's put that in about the dog is because uh, the young actor, uh, Daniel Kerr, they couldn't expose him to, to the level of violence that I got through the film. Uh, but what he did say is, uh, during the course, he got a bit ratty with me to, to be like, quite honestly. He then said, Paul, for, can you swear? Yeah. Uh, he said, Paul, for fuck's sake, you've either got a, somebody either's got a dog, a cat, a hamster, a budgie, a goldfish, a parakeet, whatever it is, and see if they've not got one. Somebody has got one. What he was trying to do was use the thread of the empathy. Mm-hmm. He, my dog did get killed, but no one that particular fashion but it did get killed it kicked in the ribs and uh did I get any detail but pet lovers would know the rib went through the lung and it and it drowned uh and and it's thanks so, so it was a, it was quite a kind of powerful I, I know I'm laughing I shouldn't laugh because when we done the premiere in London there was two old ladies uh, that you had to go and meet the investors first thing they said is did you get them back for the dogs? I know that. No, there's bullets flying about, bombs, the people falling about, and they talk about the dog. And I thought, yeah, all right, I did, yeah, yeah, I did get them back. 
and one of them went, I told you. <laughs> so Ray's got another couple. Uh, you can tell they're elderly and wealthy. And uh, the, the, the gentleman said to me, did you get them back for the dog, son? And I've looked at Ray Verdes again. I went, next one that asked me, I need to tell them the whole story. Uh, which I did, that was mild. But they, they focused on the, forget about the thousands of bullets and bombs and explosives and <laughs> there's a dog. Did you get them back? And they're all, the fucking told you we got them. But uh, realistically, it's a thread. It was artistic license that I understood. Uh, it's not a documentary. It's not a docudrama. It's a film. It's 30 out of 10 people. He's got 120 minutes to fill this in. And that part of the scene set the process for the ones that were creating the violence. That was the only part you couldn't watch, wasn't it? I had to turn away, yeah, and hide under the cover. Yeah, I uh, can't stand the thought of anyone hurting an animal. So, yeah, I can see how it stuck. No, no, the dog did die. It, yeah. it was assaulted uh, and up in a graveyard. It never happened like that. But in the movie, it's something... The dog died, it's fact. Uh, the, how it happened was artistic license, and Ray was very clever. Because the that, next uh, violent uh, scene was your girlfriend getting... Your girlfriend at the time getting attacked at a house party and yourself walking away and coming back and scalping and... No, I don't know if I can say this, putting I, I, a knife I, I, up... The man's bum who was trying to rape your I girlfriend. Think, I think there was a lot of misconceptions with that one because it wasn't my girlfriend. I was asked during the, the live interview with the, with the newspapers. Uh, it, was a, it was a girl who... I, I, courting. I, I was, no, no, I wasn't even courting. I, I, I was attracted to her, but she had a boyfriend. We were at school. And uh, this particular time, I'd been hiding in the bushes because uh, I know there's a a party going on and there's people in that this is where I was revengeful this is where I'm going to get these fuckers back doesn't matter which I'm going to get them so they're in this party we're in the bushes when I say we there's me and a friend of mine in the bushes and I saw this girl coming out it wasn't my girlfriend she's a school friend but probably a girlfriend that you say it's a friend that's a girl yeah. It's, it's, I wasn't attached to her, never kissed her, never embraced her. But she was followed out of this party, uh, probably looking about drunk, and and some did say a few things and punched her right over this oh. this this fence. And there was a few sexual things getting mentioned. Uh, the people who were doing it, we weren't there. I wasn't there to to be anything out to them. But I couldn't sit in the bushes and say anything. So I've jumped to it and uh, somebody lost a nipple. So it was a nipple? No, the guy lost his nipple. Uh, somebody got uh, stabbed in the arm. I get ambushed and uh, very flexible. Put the thing right behind me and could I swear again? Yeah, Stuck it right up his arse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there were three of them there. Got this girl away. Her name was, for clarification purposes, you might want to add this. So her name was Ellen. She was a very, very good. She was actually a friend of my girlfriend at school, but at that time she's probably sixteen. 
should never have been at that party anyway, but the I'm not there to save that alien, uh, to be honest with you, I'm there to read about revenge on people, and I never done it. So those lads, did they end up in hospital for a while after? I'd, I ended up in the same accident emergency because I got my face cut. People wonder why. How did you get that scar on your chin? Uh, I got it because one of them put me in a headlock over a fence, and the one that cut me was the one that got the, the knife up his rectum. So when I'm uh, in the, the Glasgow Royal Infirmary getting stitched up, I know I'm laughing, I shouldn't laugh at these things, but while I'm getting stitched up, there's three of them in different cubicles talking about that fucking Ferris, will we get him out? And I thought, oh, here we go. I just looked at the trolley, stole the scissors, scalpels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for it again, bandages, for they need another bandage, but it never came to that. I just got stitched up and then I had to move from my mum's to Barrafield because the three guys that I'd done were big players. Was there a point, Paul, where you went from being bullied to turning the tables? Was there, some, was there a catalyst? I, I think the catalyst was uh, when my dad was in prison. Uh, my mum used to go to work in the morning. So I'd walk her around to the, the bus stop. And the reason why I'd walk her to the bus stop was because I used to time it by step by step getting to the, the main road. There's a set of traffic lights, then there's a school. The minute the traffic lights went, I knew I had so many steps before the bell goes. Then you go to line up. So I've, I've, re- I've read some psychology about the Pavlovian theory about the dog. That was mine. Wow. Every morning, I used to count the steps to go in there, in, in the queue, uh, get your name read, go and immerse yourself in your education, and then bang, another bell. So there's a good bell, and there's a bad bell. Good bell was getting in in the morning, the bad bell was lunch, going out and having to face this and then having to come back in again. And I remember a few times, when I say violence, it's like, dead leg, you get punched, or they take stuff off you. It's just, it never happened every day, but the fear it happened every day. It was some, uh, I learned to cry through anger, and, and that was walking to my grands for lunch, and the anger turned to, Reducing, I never knew how many, how much fluid you could have in, in your eyes. I just, the anger got, the, the, and some kept telling me, you'll sort these people out one day. And I did. And I did. And I don't hide for any fact about it, is the fact that they go off lightly. Would you say the satisfaction of casting revenge was quite uh, addictive? I, I don't think satisfaction is, satisfaction is there when you do it. But I think for under for other people we understand what I've done. There's a, a report. I don't make any excuses for what I've done. Uh, probably could have done a lot worse if circumstances were different. It's just the fact that, did I feel good about it? Yeah, I did. I did, and I won't deny it. Mm. 
What subjects were you most interested in? What was your relations with your teachers like? Oh, great. I had a, a brilliant English teacher. Mm. Uh, and one of the things he, he kept going about was the Captain Cook and the Endeavour and uh, New Zealand. And, and one of the things I'd done uh, was the, we made... I, I'd, I'd done a replica of the ship, but used matches with glue and glued it all back up. And I, I got awarded uh, a book, uh, which was uh, Johan Cruyff, with a certificate. First thing I ever bought in my life. <laughs> and then recently when I started mentioning on Twitter years ago, uh, obviously the teacher I had has passed away, but his son knew about it. And he came back to him and went, that was my dad that gave you that book. <laughs> you know, and and uh, that was primary qualifications. Uh, I'd spent a year in hospital. Uh, probably had a nervous breakdown and never knew it. Uh, that's when the psoriasis kicked in. How old were you then? Uh, probably leaving primary school to go to secondary school. Mm. Maybe 11 Ten and a half. Yeah. Yeah, 11 and a half to in 12. Yeah. I just, it was something in which kids hear these stories about, oh, do you think this is bad in primary? You wait to see what's happening there. So there's loads of brothers, loads. I, I, I think I just lost that. Mm. Uh, I remember getting took uh, to the doctors, uh, and it was always this thing about because you come from a deprived area, it must be scabies, it must be an infectious disease, must be that. And I never knew what, what it was, but it was chronic, uh, and they identified it psoriasis. So I spent a full year, and the. Uh, 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 Stubhill Hospital and the kids ward. I'm, I'm physically capable, why not? And I've seen kids that were really unwell, and I'm thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? It's only my skin. Uh, but the, 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 the nurses in there, they had a hard, a hard time there. I had 80% body mass uh, psoriasis. Never had nothing on my feet, my genitals, my hands, my face. So when I, I was like the mummy put the coal tar on and wrapped you up. And I had a good rapport with nurses because maybe on a Friday night they get a curry. Paul, you want a bad curry. It was great uh, it was to, to be in that environment. So when I went back to uh, secondary school, that was a big step for me. That was me. But met a lot of few people, new people for different areas. Uh, one in particular I'll mention just now, he's came back into in my life as uh, Jim Kelly uh, Bernie Gallagher a few, just a few other people that you met that gave you a bit of strength that you could go and get the bus in confidence but still that angers on you that you're thinking if I see these people I will do something but they went to a different school and I enjoyed it enjoyed it for the, for the next couple of years English was probably my, my strongest point, but what I've found recently is when you're starting to write, is the I before the E, you know, the grammatic. My son Dean makes me look a good writer. <laughs> the problem is, what I've found as a, a format is recording, uh, somebody transcribing. <laughs> the worst one that happened recently was with Steve Wraith. So you've got a Scotsman, a Geordie Admin. <laughs> And then these words come up, and it just shows you how you can change one word and it can create a whole 
different story, but we got there in the end. It was great. So when was your first brushing with the law? First brush with the law was uh, we heard about the older boys uh, that broke into a, a B&Q to warehouse, right? And they were just <laughs> stealing everything, quilts, pillows, yeah. power yeah. tools. And they're probably been doing it for three or four months. By the time we get told about it, we thought, aha, let us go. And the, the boys told us how to get in without setting alarms off. He said, going to take the window off the door. Take the glass out, otherwise the alarm's going to go off. But what we never knew is, there was loads of CID. <laughs> oh, oh, hi. They were sick of this fucking the housebreaking. They call it housebreaking. It's uh, in Scotland. Uh, it was a B&Q that got in there. So I walked in there with a friend of mine. I've got a crowbar. We know how we're going to get in. We're going to take the window out. And all I heard was the radio's going off. Big H, big H. It's some like fucking... Anyway, we got surrounded. I got took the, 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 the crowbar off me and got hot over the head with it. And, and get, <laughs> I get <laughs> flung face down in a puddle. And I remember lying, thinking... Uh, this shouldn't be going like this. And then I heard the alarm going. They went up and put the crowbar open the door that we would never get in. So the alarm goes off. So I've got to tell the lawyer, when I went to court, I never had a lawyer. I've got a court-appointed lawyer. And when I spoke to the lawyer about what, matter of fact, uh, they couldn't detain me because the blood's rushing out. You'd probably see a scar there, you know. Uh, I get detained. They couldn't detain me. I got took to hospital. Get stitched up. Get threw out. As soon as my dad heard that, he took us right down to uh, Blackhill Police Station and made a complaint. And next day, I'm standing at the street corner. Two CID pull up in the car. And it's a threat. It's a threat. Everybody else ran away. I, I, I don't know why. I had no reason to run away. Maybe they, they had reasons to run away, but uh, this passenger had said, uh, making a complaint. I went, uh-huh. She said, you better fucking drop it. And I did. I did. I dropped it. And how old were you at this point? About 15. 15. Uh, about 15. I just dropped it. Left it. And, he, and he's, uh, I will not mention names, but he was a, a well-renowned uh, detective in Bird Street Police Station. Did you end up in Young Offenders at all? Uh, never at that time. I ended up in the Young Offenders. Uh, uh, the first time I ended up in there was, my dad was always forceful about, you're 16 now, get a job. My mum, you're still in bed, get a job. This happened daily. <laughs> a lot of people have had that. You're still in your bed, fucking doors get kicked. So anyway, I got the job centre. I got a job as a van boy uh, with a company called Waverley uh, Vinters, which is a subsidiary the Scottish Newcastle Breweries. What that does is, you know what splits us? It's like wines, champagnes, and so they, whiskies and vodka. So they deliver that. Uh, had a great job there, really enjoyed it, uh, getting £180 a week. And there was one occasion where a friend of mine, 
uh, had stopped outside my parents' house and I heard the, the horn, beep, beep. So I looked out the window and I thought, fucking hell, he stole a brand new BMW. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to tell him to take it away. So when I brought him into the house, it's his BMW, he bought it. He knew I could drive, I could drive for very early age, which a lot of people don't know about, and I did. So he offered me a position to be a driver because you couldn't trust people. To, and I went, what is it you're doing? He says, I go into jeweler shops, uh, I know the things that I'm looking for, as soon as they produce it, I take it and run out the shop. He said, but when I run out the shop, I've not got a driver. And I'm thinking, all right. So he's pulled 500 quid out and gave me 500 quid. Was they blank? Blank said it was, it was blank. It was a different story, right? Somebody, somebody else. But I remember panicking. I need to hide this 500 pound from my mum. <laughs> <laughs> my mum was total Catholic. She would never tell lies for anybody. So I remember putting it on uh, one of the speakers on my, my hi-fi. And I refused it two or three times, but he said, keep it. That's for us. And the whole irony is, my mum made me sandwiches every morning to go to work. I never went to work. <laughs> I never went to work. I don't know, I shouldn't laugh, right? But it got to a stage where I had been arrested on a, a jeweler's raid. And then the cops went back to my mum and said, your son falls in prison. And she went, no, he's at work. <laughs> I don't think he is. My mum was more pissed off. She made me sandwiches for three months. <laughs> <laughs> I used to put the overalls on, go to work, then take them off, then go and do something else. So <laughs> she was never too happy <laughs> with that one. So when I get uh, arrested uh, for uh, an attempted theft, uh, uh, that, that's when I got uh, remanded to the young of... To, to, I got remanded to Bellini first. Bellini. And Bellini used to have a separate wing for young offenders. And I remember having to stand in this desk and look out, get a bit of sunlight. And I could see my neighbours <laughs> back gardens <laughs> and I thought, why am I doing And as kids, we used to hide in the bushes near the pub and sing this song about the Black Mariah when it was there. That was the vans that used to come in. Now I've got a recall. I can remember singing that song, looking up at those windows, but, but I'm looking back down and going, how did I get here? Uh, and then and things developed. So I what, ended sorry, up... Sorry, what year was that? That would have been uh, 1980. So it was and 1980, I, I was, uh, took to court and <laughs> was given three months detention uh, in the detention centre. I only know it was three months, but fucking hell, man. this was something else. This was like a boot camp. It says, oh, you've, you've been grown up, you've got blinkers on. Uh, you don't really see it too much when you get in there. There's no walking, so I'm marching. There's no talking. <laughs> there's, there's one, I still can't even shave, but th- there was a thing in the morning. They don't call it toilets, they call it ablutions. Right, so in the morning, you've got a pair of shorts on, you've got your slippers on, you've got your towel folded over there, you've got a plastic cup, and uh, you get down to the, to follow the queue and the ablutions. And there's a, a prison officer there that goes, Raise up! <laughs> Raise up! So I kind of looked and went, uh, No. He's like, No, you stand up. 
you're supposed to say no thank you so I've had on this right so he's let a couple of other people by and he's went do you know Razor I went because uh, I heard what they've said and I went uh, no thank you slap right inside if you stand there I was thinking, why the fuck have I done that? I can't even shave. <laughs> so eventually I've heard, no thank you, sir. But this time, the prison officer was obviously uh, XRUC. Don't know if it's because I was a Catholic, but when I went to shave, I kept the plastic, but I didn't shave anyway. But I had these red hand ulsters all on my fucking face, and I'm thinking, I know what you say the next time. So detention. But I really enjoyed that. After a while, the discipline. Uh, the worst thing I ever done was put my hands up and said I used to do a bit of cross country, and I did. But I forgot I'm lying on demand. <laughs> I was last. I'd done it my own six minutes <laughs> with this physical instructor kicking me up the arse, going cross country runner. Fucking, you better start there. So I managed to get it done to five. I couldn't. I couldn't beat five, twelve, five, thirteen. So it was average, but I showed progress. The food down there was brilliant. Uh, the discipline was brilliant. Would it? There's great things that you could take for it. Uh, the discipline, the food, the nutrition, but the violence was there. They, they were very violent, and the, the the next step going for the young offenders. Uh, I never left the uh, the detention centre because another had another court case pending to get for. So I left the detention centre, went to court, and then I get twelve months in the, the young offenders, uh, which was next door to the detention centre. But the funny thing about it, and there is, I met somebody called James O'Neill. They called him nearly the bomb. He's always making the, the explosive devices up. He just matches and different things like that. He was somebody who was a very much anti-nonce because what you had the sex offenders in the prison. They used to get mixed in the prison. And, uh, and all that you get, the, the, the James and Neil ran the prison gang in Glenoco called the Glenoco Wolves. So because I've done a bit of time in the Young Offenders Institution, and they got caught with a shotgun, and it was a big thing being a a, a, a kind of teenager. Uh, so, so you get a pass into being into the Glenofo Cool Wolves, but you've got to sit and watch what somebody else is going to do to all the And some of these things were just... The one I remember most was there was a sex offender next door to James O'Neill, and uh, he said, Paul, come up and see me. And the prison chills, uh, it's normally prison chills, right? But what he's done, he's got a razor blade, never cut it in half, cut it down to the end, but tied a knot in it, tied a few a variety of knots in it, and made a noose. Now, the, the windows on the prison cell open out the way. And when they open out the way, you can put the knot up into the bar and shut the window. So he's saying to me, this is so-and-so, I can't even remember who it was. This is so-and-so. Show Paul how serious you, that you are for the crimes that you've committed and what you're going to do tonight. So 
he's got the noose up, put it, no, James put the noose up, <coughs> put it on his neck, the guy stood in the chair, James just kicked the chair away, walked out and shut the door and went, mum will get to lunch. And I'm looking going, guy's dead, he's going, he's going with that. By the time we get to the, uh, the dining hall, the day checks, they survived it, there's been a, a bell that's been pressed, He's been up and nearly died. James was just absolute nuts towards his fetal. The other one that I remember, uh, same thing again, invited into somebody else's cell and he's got a piece of metal that's up to the, the workshop and the prison. And he said, right, show Paul what you're going to do tonight. Right? And he, the boy cut himself a, a bit and he's went, no, I do it properly. <laughs> I'll show you how to do it. That thing just went, whoosh, blood was, blood was it. And again, when it, I'm not saying nearly, uh, James O'Neill was, uh, potentially vicious. What I did say to him after a while, I went, James, what the fuck are you doing this for? He said, for you won't remember. They've done that to kids. Do you know how their dads, their mums, their uncles, their aunties would want to do something about it? We're in prison. That's my entertainment. If you're in, you're in. If you don't want it, then I thought, I'm in. <laughs> that was that. That's, that, that's the experience that, I've, that I had for a number of years in the Young Offenders Institution. They were always targets. And Sex what, offenders and grasses were always targets. I could imagine. And what other acts of violence were quite frequent? Quit, what, 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 in pri- what, of- what in prison? Mm. Uh, slashings. The, that was a common thing that... Uh, you would get a disposable razor blade. <laughs> Funny enough, I had ones that I don't even use. So they stamp on it, take the blade off it, they get the toothbrush, heat, heat the toothbrush up, get the plastic on it, they melt the plastic back on it, and then they get the red thread out the blanket and wrap it around so they've got a weapon. Shank, yeah. It's not a shank, a shank's for stabbing. What's, what's the razor for? For slashing. Slashing. The, the face or the neck or the arse or the arse yeah or the buttocks yeah. to be played <laughs> yeah <laughs> leads quite well from there uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> no that that was that shanks shanks were very seldom used well it was just razors and sharp objects and that would be from 1980 to 1984 I can imagine the conditions back in 1980 were pretty rough Bit porridge like. Uh, depends where you are. Depends where you are. I remember one of the, the surreal situations is people who know about prisons, they know that when you're due to go and get your food, there's a, a steel tray. There's indentations in it where you put your, you get your bowl of soup, you get your main course, and then you get your, 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 your dessert. Uh, I knew somebody was going to be having serious issues on the exercise yard. And it kicked off before the exercise yard. And I went to throw this tray. <laughs> it went like a frisbee. <laughs> Missed everybody and hit the screw right in the side of the head. And I thought, oh, fuck. I thought I got away with it. And, do you know the fellow who wears the whites? Behind the, it's a prison officer who wears white because he's part of serving the food. 
I didn't know that. So he saw me. And went, I fucking saw that. And I was like, oh, here we go. And the worst pain that I've ever had in my life was when they jumped me. So I've got a prison officer with that arm, prison officer with that arm, prison officer with each leg. So that's four. Fifth prison officer's holding your head down. So you don't know where you're going. If they know where you're going, you can go somewhere. And this one ran up by me and kicked me right in the bollocks. Oh. Uh, <laughs> on a, you're floating, you're walking. It was just a pain that I've never felt in my life until I ended. I had the courage to say to them, I hope you get back and tell your wives and your girlfriends how you treat your, how you treat the, they just dropped me from my there, which was probably oh. worse. <laughs> <laughs> time, time, but took me two days to recover. But they thought I, I genuinely hurt this prisoner. Mm. It was an accident. But I did hit him. I never meant to hit him. But that, that's the sort of level of violence that, that you go. And I get put in solitary confinement for that. I was in uh, remand on, on Valini. And uh, because they put you on an, an escapee thing, you're only allowed to... You, 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 <laughs> I'm not lashing, I'm laughing a lot of things. But it's, it's, it's funny at times because they take your prison clothes off you put them on a chair outside and give you pyjamas, which oh, is nice. great. Yeah. Because I always used to pyjamas, to put creams on and do it with But at night time, they come and give you your tea. I can't remember what happened is. I've ended up losing the buttons of the, the pyjama top. I get maybe half a cup of tea that's lying sideways, falling out, and I lost one sliver. So the, the, the irony becomes relevant. When they've shut the door and they're swearing, I'm going, fuck off, do what you're doing. So I've managed to get a drink of tea. No, no, nothing great on it. Uh, I tied the bottom of the fajam. It's like a blouse. <laughs> There's no buttons on it. So I've tied the bottom of that. I'm looking for this other slipper. Can't find it, but it's concrete floors. So I've got the left slipper, took that off, and I'm standing with two feet on the one slipper, just to keep the cold off. Right, but this fucking blouse there because there were no buttons on it. Mm-hmm. And this screw comes running up and just by and goes, the fuck you doing, Ferris? And I went, I don't know. I had a vision I was black in black, black hill when I was younger on a skateboard. <laughs> with one slipper. <laughs> if that makes sense, I don't know. <laughs> but that was that night. It was, it was just bad. Uh, Probably due a lot of the discipline. How we reacted, it was was different. Just the, the way it is in the young offenders situation. So the detention centre, violent, uh, but I liked it. I, I don't, don't when I say I, I don't like the, I like the discipline. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Look what's in this gem. It's the vegan power mix from Koro. So we have a mixture of nut kernels, dried fruit... 
Cacao nibs, soy mm. crispies, and hemp seed pulled. What are these little red ones? Wait. Look at this bear. Mmm. Mmm. That's good. Fresh and healthy. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro's quality management team carefully and regularly reviews the quality of their products. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Uh, young offenders, when, uh, and <laughs> young offenders, there was uh, violent prison officers for the detention centre that worked next door. And we kind of saw the Irish one that gave a lot of people the red hand Ulster. So, in prison, you know about this one, Sean. I get nominated as a shit stirrer. When I say a shit stirrer, I'll, I'll explain that for the benefit of the audience. Please. People get asked to donate either urine or excrement in a pot. For what reason? Because it's going over a prison officer's head. Right. So when you get enough of that, it's going to be done in such a way it's treacle. And my job was to stir, <laughs> was to stir it. But how I had to stir it was, was Vicks. <laughs> oh. I put, used to put Vicks under my nose and go, right, that's it, done. Leave a towel over that. Somebody would then go on speak to somebody else. The punishment, I, I, I remember the, the noise. The noise is just like weird. When it goes over his head, it flashes over his shoulder. I never done that. We had somebody else to throw it. But when he took over, it was like a, a slurping noise. Like, oh. <laughs> they're all sick. They're all doing what they're doing. But he should remember, don't treat kids like that at the detention centre because they grow up. And was there any repercussions from that? Oh, there was. <laughs> there was. The funniest thing was, in the afternoon, I went back to the hospital, went to get a bath. And what the prison officer done is smeared all the shit on the benches so everybody's got to come in and sit down before they go to work. <laughs> I know, I missed it. So Johnny Boy Steele, he gave me a tour around Bolini oh, Prison. Sure. Yeah. And he was telling me stories of the big bad boss of Bolini. And I think there was a scene what, ch- in uh, Wee Man. Uh, uh, Slasher Gallagher. Slasher Gallagher. Yeah. Tell, can you tell the viewers about Slasher Gallagher? Slasher Gallagher uh, was uh, a governor who thought he was a gangster. And he would get an open your cell with several screws there. I think the first one he done it was, I, I, I got to, to know about him after his career was getting finished. At the point in time, uh, he had an altercation with, with Jimmy Boyle. Uh, I even in his last year, they had a fight, a mad fucking fight. That's what they called him, Slasher Gallica. But what he would do is, being a prison governor, would be aggressive. So he's got his, not only is he a prison governor, he's got the prison security and a couple of big burly people. And if MD, John of still got a, a bad, bad time. A bad, bad time about it. I don't know how they done that. Uh, never actually met John of I've met a few of his family first time, but he had a bad, bad time. And, and gave out quite a fair bit and what he got. 
But Slasher Gallagher, <laughs> he was renowned and a governor acting like opening the door and saying, okay, you want a straightener? You want a fight? That's how not too much. But how can you fight somebody that's got a gang there? So if you beat them, you get smashed up anyway. And if you see, yeah, I never actually met him at all. Don't think I'd have got on with him anyway, but he was kind of famous in the penal system in Berlin. And what was his downfall? What was his downfall? I don't really know that, Sean. I think, prob- oh, I'll tell you what his downfall was. He fucking took cartridges and it, uh, a, a frisk. It's shotgun cartridges by accident, but you shouldn't have them in there. And somebody in the security didn't like him, got him moved out. But apart from that, the, even the, the prison officers didn't like him. He was the, don't like to use this word, Gestapo, but mm. he loved it. And so did some of his, his minions. So he was a bit older than me. And the irony is, uh, Tommy Campbell, Bought his old house <laughs> when he got his compensation. Oh, wow. Aye. That is ironic. Crazy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Slash of Gallagher, uh, governor of Berlin at the time, but I, I think he used the mentality that his gang was bigger than anybody else. That's how they ran it. But if he got caught on the outside without his gang, then he'd have been in trouble. In the movie, you get quite chopsy with the governor and the prison. Did that happen? At that time, it happened quite a lot. Because, was... because in order to, in order to, the, the, the situation you've got to remember, when you're going to see the governor, there's a long table, so you can't get him. Right? So he sits at the big table, he's got two bodyguards running about him, and you've got two people there. All you've got is your voice. And on that occasion, that was took out of something in which where when I was in the, what they call the segregation, the Wendy House in Berlin. Uh, I did have friendly prison officers, but also had not so friendly prison officers, right? And there was one occasion I was slipped a note under, under the door regarding the supergrass who was Dennis Woodman, who was just getting took into the security wings out with it. And it was always just, always just governor that signed them out. So I waited until a week, two weeks went past. And then I asked to see the security governor. And then it was a whole charade. He sat there, he sat on, he's got two Rottweilers with a spaghetti on the heart, and the, you know the way it works on, right? And a big long table, so you can't, <laughs> yeah, you know if you, you're getting beat up anyway, you're not getting any chance to get them. So mine was always words. So he was wondering, Yes, because I put the request in to see the security governor. So you get in there, right, Ferris, what's the request? I said, the request is, how well do you know Dennis Sidney Wilkinson? And he looked at the silly way towards his two security. You heard of that name? I said, heard of that name? I said, you'll be hearing a lot about that name. Why did you sign him out on such and such a day? I just rattled or I, I memorised it. I said, don't bother explaining it to me. And if you're involved and try to manufacture evidence against me, you'll find out about it when I get out. 
I forget out, and if I don't get out, somebody will come and pay your visit. Is that a threat? I said, no. Just you going to call and explain how you don't know him, but you do. You signed him out five times. So go and you explain that one. That's what I got. So that was a friendly people telling me we don't like what's going on here. So, and, and probably because I was a Catholic anyway. In a Protestant environment that my dad, I don't bother with, with politics, but when you've got a green card and most of them are, are kind of got the crown on, their, that, that's where they're loyal to. All right, well, <coughs> could you explain to the viewers who Arthur Thompson was and how you first became aware of him? What one? Arthur Thompson. The senior or junior? Senior. Arthur Thompson, yeah. senior. Uh, the first time that I heard about Arthur Thompson, senior, as a kid, uh, there was an explosion that, that took place uh, roughly 150 yards to where my parents' house is. Uh, going out my parents' front door, going through a backfield, that was eyes on to Thompson's Provenal Road. So as the crow flies, it was less than two minutes. Uh, I never heard the explosion. We heard about it. Uh, and apparently it was uh, designed uh, to assassinate Thompson Sr. because it was put under the passenger seat because he always had a driver. <clears throat> you get one of the mafia films that the driver doesn't turn up, the guy gets whacked. That's probably what, what, no. I'm not saying what happened because I think the bomb was already planted the night before. Uh, his mother-in-law, who's absolutely innocent, it's got none at all to do. Out and, and, and Arthur Thompson Senior decided to take her home. Uh, I don't know whether they moved. It's a mercury towel, or he put the indicator on, but the bomb exploded underneath the passenger seat. Killed her outright. Uh, so that was the big news about who Arthur Thompson was. And then uh, uh, the senior. And then growing up, uh, my dad had always said a few choice words. Not again. It was always warnings, but as kids, do you think you know better and all the rest of it? But he was, uh, <clears throat> was regarded as the figurehead. Uh, Never known to us as the Godfather. Nobody ever said, oh, let's go and see the Godfather. <laughs> if, if they did, they would go to see a movie. Yeah. <laughs> he was either old Arthur, old man, AT, the boss, whatever his name was. He never had any saying, oh, go and visit the Godfather, man. Matter of fact, I don't even think he liked it, uh, at, at fact, because he's, he's solicitor later on, Joe Boutrami had gave something and said, that's the media spin that put on. So the media gave him the name. I think it was a bit embarrassed with it, but he played up to it a few times as well, I'd imagine. So when I got to, to know him personally, I spoke to him personally, uh, there was a, a situation involved uh, with one of his nephews. Uh, I don't know if it was a stolen car, but his nephew was driving a vehicle that hot pedestrian that ha my young sister happened to see it and apparently I think she gave a statement to the police and different things like that so when I told my dad about it 
is it Gunnarsson as a Govansi the Arthur Chelum Afsent Iran and there'll be no statements for this family. Uh, when I explained that, Arthur Thompson Sr. then invited me to the Provenal Inn to see him later on. Not for a drink, but he gave us a carton of cigarettes. Mum and Dad never smoked, but he gave us a carton of cigarettes and a bottle of whiskey to take back to my dad. So it was like, thanks for that, and that's how we deal with it. That, that's my first uh, meeting with him. And then you got approached to work for him. The approach to work with him after that, I was probably <clears throat> 16, 17, and how it came to the attention was during that particular time, we go back to the bullying. Uh, there, there was, funny enough, the, when I say funny enough, I don't mean to be funny about it, but the family who was involved with the feud between Arthur Thompson, the bombs and all the rest, happened to be the younger generation that was bullying me. So, the the things that I dashed out uh, was uh, horrific. Scalped somebody, somebody's throat got cut, somebody got really, really sorted out. And then when you when Thompson found out about this, it became my enemy's his enemy, sort of thing. And it was it was put to me at one time. Uh, what are you doing all this for? They, they couldn't understand why it was all going. I said, fucking bullying at school. And that's when I was asked about, do you want to do something similar for finances rather than doing all this one? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, is that the way it goes? He's going, yeah, go crack on with it. And uh, that's when I met Arthur Thompson Jr. He just got released for the, for prison sentence. Was he a bit of a fuck? Who? Uh, the junior, Arthur Thompson Jr. It, uh, to be fair, I'd like to say a lot of things about him, but he's dead. But what, what I do remember about him is, I'm not going to be disrespectful, other than the fact that uh, he lived off his dad's reputation. One of the first things that I never got on him about uh, was, uh, he's come out the house one day, he's got a can of CS gas, <coughs> And there's an old fella walking up towards us. He's went, oh, I'll wait to see if this works. <laughs> Sprayed it in this guy's face and collapsed. And I thought, that fucking arsehole. But he knew everything about firearms. He taught me a lot about firearms. We used to make with own ammunition and loads of other stuff. He was very clever, but mad at the same time. Uh, I think because his dad and he's creating an empire and all the rest of it. So uh, he was tolerated because he, who his dad was, and that was the main thing. Because, yeah, they portray him in the film as being a bit of a Billy Big Bollocks. Uh, that was probably a mild version. That <laughs> 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 was. Uh, yeah. the, the fact that even being portrayed in the movie, in real life, people say, he never wore a suit. There's photographs of him sitting in his shirt and tie. There's people that want to sympathise with him and different things like that. My, my views entirely different. He was dangerous, financially dangerous. He could pay a lot of money to different people to get things done. That's the problem. And what age did you 
Uh, well, Tom McGraw first coming to your life. Tom McGraw. Uh, Tom McGraw first came into my life. I, I knew I'd heard about Tom McGraw. I lived in another part of the city. And when I was involved in uh, recording serving police officers uh, about killing me, uh, about planting drugs, about different things like Because if I never had the recording, nobody, nobody's going to believe you. So when kind of the dust settled, I thought it was clever moving through uh, D Division and another division, but it's still Strathclyde Police. And the guy that got me the, the first property in, in Balalik was uh, Tom Began, who was uh, an, a, a, also an enforcer and debt collector for Thompson. So he said, Paul, come over here and get away with it. And the first time I was driving into the estate, he says, there's a fella in here called Tam McGraw. Tell him a load of bollocks, tell him nothing what you're doing because he, he's working with other people. So right away before I even met Tom McGraw, I knew he was a, a, a police asset. And that would be 1998. If he was a police asset, why did nobody put a hit on him? They tried. <laughs> How many times? Uh, quite a few. He stayed in a bottom flat one time and there was people underneath his window. Somebody peeped the horn <laughs> and he looked out the wrong window. So he'd, he'd been very lucky. He led, led a charmed life. But what, what you had was how it started. He had his ice cream vans and then you get the local uniform cops going to search the, the van. So there'd be a sleeve of cigarettes. There would be He's compromising them. He, 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 he was, he corrupted them as well as they corrupted him. So at very early stages, he's reporting other vans, reporting other people that for doing this. And at the stage, these uniform cops are grown up to be sergeants, detective sergeants. So that's how it all came about. Uh, there was a, a, a kind of scenario. Tommy Campbell talked about it one time where there was a, an actual struggle between uh, police officers that was wanting to arrest him for something <laughs> and serious crime squad that was his asset, having an argument in the streets with a tug of war. He's coming with us. No, he's not. Uh, I've got no reason to believe, disbelieve Tommy Campbell with that, but it, it was well known what he's done. So was Arthur Thompson paying the cops off as well? Uh, Arthur Thompson, uh, no, he was in a bigger game. Arthur Thompson was somebody who, to my knowledge, was providing uh, vast amounts of firearms for loyalists. Uh, there was a suggestion and there was information that came back that he was actually been working with security services because apparently they put trackers on it so when they, they, they know where it goes. That's where it goes. That's why you get left alone quite a bit. In the movie, sorry to keep referring back to it, but your sister seemed quite distraught as you entering into the crime world. Was that a realistic version of how she was acting? It's, it's probably uh, quite an accurate account. My, my sister called Kathy, Catherine at that time. Uh, she had quite a hard lifestyle. I never knew what happened when she was growing up. I was just there. She was always there for me. Uh, 
it was always a safe house that I could go back to. And the the, the strange thing about it was there was a a, a place in Glasgow called uh, at Barrowfield. <clears throat> the name of the street was Stamford Street, and she lived in one one five nine Stamford Street, which is the border between two gangs. <laughs> If you go into a right-hand turn, you're in a place called uh, the Torch. <laughs> Is it the Torch? Uh, or you go left and it's as far. Uh, when I was a young, people never bothered with But my sister, uh, she was always very, very emotional. Uh, she always... She was like my second mum. Uh, and, and she's still there and, and doing what she's done. So... That that's probably very realistic, eh? Yeah. Uh, what was your hurriest moment working for Arthur Thompson? The what? The hurriest, the like most dangerous moment working. The most for dangerous him. moment. Yeah. Uh, the most dangerous moment. It's got to be firearms, right? Uh, because he used to make bullets up in the back garden, and we'd go out and test them. But this, this particular time I'm not driving Tom Began's driving Arthur Thompson Junior's in the back seat I'm in the passenger seat so we get into these country roads and he pops the sunroof open <laughs> and he's shooting at 30 mile an hour signs and what other signs but what he forgets is the casings <laughs> one went down the back of Tom <laughs> Tom Began's shot and he looked at me and went Fucking had enough of this cunt. <laughs> you can still swear, can't you? Have enough of this cunt. So he, he said, Watch this. So he's pressed the, the sunroof because he was kind of portly, Tom. So he's pressed the sunroof and he's jammed in. And he just start, Tom starts rallying it <laughs> around the country. And he, you hear Thompson shout, Thompson Jr. shouting, You don't fucking slow down, I'll tell my dad. <laughs> so that's if you make it. So here he asked time. Probably things like that, or going into areas to collect money. <laughs> you don't know. You don't even know if you're getting back out. You know, have you got have you get that money there? Uh, no. For when you're going to have it, uh, can you? T- I'm not telling them anything. You better tell them. There was no violence. You get all those things, but Arthur Arthur Junior did go in one meeting and cut a guy's face on his front door for nothing. You know, it was nuts. How real was the scene with uh, Alfred Thompson Jr. where you ran into the rival gang um, and he didn't have a gun, but he did. He allegedly did That was embarrassing. Was, was it? That was embarrassing because I picked him up that day. Yeah. Uh, in the movie that's a red Mercedes, I had a, a green Volvo, a 264 GLE. I'd picked him up and... The, 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 that part of the film uh, has got artistic license but in reality what happened is he's in the passenger seat I've just picked him up we've stopped at a set of traffic lights and the, the, we can name the bank brothers yeah. yeah the bank's brothers we're coming back from signing on their DHSS because they've all got the same initial right someone with a big coats on and it's one of these surreal moments I'm waiting for the traffic lights to go see them they see me <laughs> the coats go open 
And luckily, it's birdshot they've got. But right on the windscreen where I'm five or six shots off Hepward. So, as you do, <laughs> right through the red light. Thompson screaming at me, uh, take me down, I need to see my dad. I don't think they knew I was in the car. And I'm thinking, what the f- why? Anyway, so as I'm trying to see him, I need one of them. I'm going back. And that's when he leaned in the car and he's like, show the holster. Mm. So he's a bit I scared. said, so what are you doing there? I'm going to speak to my dad. That's when I knew there was some... These, these are the people that killed his fucking... His, his gran. Yeah. You know, they want to bring it on, bring it on. Luckily for me, it was birdshot. But I got arrested driving back up. Oh, so you didn't make it into the house? That time? Uh, not that time, no. Not that time. Not that time. What can we talk about about the time you did make it into the house <laughs> on YouTube? <laughs> it wasn't through the front door. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a steel band through a black win- a back window, mm. but that's never been mentioned. So we'll leave that one. Yeah, we'll leave that. Why did you fall out of Arthur Thompson? Uh, when I was arrested in Rossi, I thought I was protected. Uh, I got a set of keys which was for a Daimler uh, I was given the address I was familiar with the place because he, he, he used to have a boat down there so for me to be on the run to get down there uh, I've got a car that's no mine I'm on a ferry that's no mine I've got a set of keys for a place that's no mine uh, my girlfriend Anne with Anne-Marie at that time was Six months pregnant, looking for me. A uh, couple of covert phone calls. I managed to get somebody to take her down on the ferry. Now, if they knew I was there, they'd have arrested me at the ferry. Right? People said, ah, oh, you stayed the night. I never stayed the night. I was on there for fucking lessons. So we went shopping, watched the, foot, watched the football game, and they came in at night. We never even stayed the night. They knew I was there. Incidentally, I reviewed some of the information and the police officer who was the firearms expert on the island confirmed that his boss in Glasgow had asked him to look out for a Daimler vehicle. At that address. So they knew that the warrant was already there. By the time I go to trial and I look through it, it's somebody who's very well versed in legal stuff and said, if I ever read it that one, I'm reading it. He said, when did you get arrested? And I was like, on that same day. That, that's a process that might take half an hour, might take an hour, signed on the island before I even get there. Magic. Mm, bad smell about that one. And was Junior really plotting against his own dad? Uh, what happened there was, his dad wasn't really... Uh, his dad was old school. He didn't... You probably heard the story about the mafia and how some people liked the drug, some people didn't like the drug. So young Arthur, he was dabbling into it, but not to a great extent that he's going to be fucking a, a drug dealer. But... What had happened was when I got arrested on the holiday home in 24 uh, Agile Street in Rossi, there was a list, handwritten list. 
cocaine, self, black. It's all his handwriting. So they knew what he was doing. That's why he got fitted up. So I got arrested on the 12th of December 1984, and he was arrested in January thereafter. Because I think that just, when they got that, they know his handwriting, fingerprints. Could have got his dad into trouble, because on the reverse side of the envelope was a design for a window that his dad was making for somewhere else. Could have been used as corroboration for a conspiracy. So that that's when I knew there was a lack of trust there. So your two friends, um, I believe, was it Jimmy and... Johnny. Johnny. And the film. Yeah, but that's not their real names, no. no. Were murdered by Arthur Thompson's gang. How much of the story is that true? Uh, the, what, what Reg uh, Mackay, uh, my literary partner, had, had done is he focused on what's the word on the street for? So I'm in prison, I don't know when I said. Yeah. So, so I'm listening to people when I go, word in the street is this happened, that happened, this happened, that's gossip. We hope you enjoy the podcast. This is a word from our sponsor. Jen, it's that time of the year when people are stuffing themselves with food and the sun's not out and vitamin deficiencies occur. You said that you were on some vitamins, but you were overdosing yourself. I honestly was taking up to 10 tablets a day, not knowing if they were giving me any health benefits at all. So now finding Vital has proved absolutely wonders for me. Fill in a short online consultation about your diet, health goals and lifestyle and Vital will create a tailored made pack just for you. To get a free two week trial of personalized vitamins, head to vitl.com and use the code Sean, S-H-A-U-N at checkout. Link is in the description box below this video. So Jen, how easy is the Vital website to use? So with a few simple steps, it can tell you what you are lacking in nutrients. So for me, it was my skin, sleep, and stress. <laughs> so mm. now after four days of use, I'm already seeing an improvement. So well done, Vital. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Now back to the podcast. So what he said is, we're going to use the best part of the gossip and we're going to put it into the book and we'll hear what says, what that Reg Mackay wrote about was a load of bollocks because it happened like this. <laughs> <laughs> Reg was very clever, honestly. Supremely clever. So we, we got more and more and more and more information. Bear in mind, it's still the two live murder inquiries. Uh, some of the people who've been involved in it are no longer there. Uh, there's other people who are there uh, and they might not be there for too long either. Uh, these sort of things don't go away too easy. Uh, but the fact that they were betrayed by a phone call was, uh, was a hard one. Yeah. It was a hard one. And were they displayed at the funeral uh, procession? Uh, that, the dead bodies? Uh, see, there's two different things. That, uh, there's a journalistic story about it where if you look at the logistics, Arthur Thompson and his son, who was buried, the graveyard is 500 yards from. So why would they need to travel three miles 
te gonte da afitate ato no fitate and if you don't do it, that's him showing the other people, look who's lying on now. Don't know if it happened, I'm in prison. But I think logistically, if you're going to bury somebody, what, why did he do to her? There's 500 yards away. Uh, could have happened, I don't, I don't know. Uh, were, they, were they displayed? Uh, they, were, they were obviously somewhere overnight. Uh, all this talk about they were shot up the anus and all the rest of it. Uh, I've got a friend of mine that, that's seen the autopsy reports. Uh, they were shot in the head uh, once and shot in the heart, shot in the chest. That must have been so devastating. You're inside and you hear the news of their deaths. Yeah. How did it affect you? It affected me when certain prison officer lit a newspaper up and put it under my door and said, you're going to end up like your friends. And I thought, really? Well, you know who I am. I'll try to stamp the flames out. I said, well, you know who I am. Open the spy hole and let me see who you are. So we had good screws, good prison officers, bad prison officers. So that's how I learned about it. They lit that newspaper and flung it on the door that day. Yeah. I did cry. Of course. I did cry quite a, quite a fair bit. I did. And I, and I, and I don't mind that. It was just something that was a shock to the system, and I'm thinking, I'm not saying it would have happened if I was out. That people were saying, "Oh, you're lucky; you could kiss the four walls, and you survived that." I went to trial, and I got released, and I stayed in Glasgow for two years. So, what was the problem with that? Jail never saved me. So, what were you in prison for that time? I was in prison for a kneecap. And when you got out, did the meeting really happen? Were no, no, when I, <coughs> I got out before that, Sean, because I knew the individual who got kneecapped and I knew what he was doing. Uh, I applied for bail. Uh, what I'd done was I had to sack my solicitor and go there myself. Uh, the material change in circumstances is that they couldn't take me under escort to get there because it was like fucking Moses in the Red Sea, <laughs> blue lights and. They never waited for red traffic lights, just straight out through. Uh, so I decided the material change in circumstances in law and Scots law was if I was present when I heard this, I would have dispensed with my counsel. So I've made that application. I wasn't allowed to be there, but I'm going there now. My argument was quite simple. Under Scots law, you need two parts of corroboration. What we go is one absolute idiot that had uh, already been decapped with an Irish department and was just, a, it was tell, telling tall tales. So I put it to the, to the court and to the judges. My understanding of the application of law You've got an individual verbally claiming something. I know that you've got none corroborative evidence to substantiate what he's saying, so therefore I should be allowed bail until you get it. And then went back to court, waited a week, and, and I get bail. I get bail just before the Christmas. 
And then I wondered why all these fucking cars were all falling me again. And I thought, <laughs> you know, nice. I'm going to the local police station and make a complaint. That's his harassment. <laughs> as soon as I walked in and gave my name, they were like, yeah, hold on a minute. That's what they, they, they charged me for murder. Because when I left Berlini, this Dennis Woodman, <laughs> I didn't know who he was, this confession that I'm supposed to have. There's times that I don't even tell myself. <laughs> Never mind fucking somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, he's, he's done what he's done and, and made his statement. So I get re- re-arrested and then get took back into the Berliner. Did the meeting really happen where Arthur told you not to touch his son? Junior. It never happened to such. There was a mediator that was sent because his dad didn't fancy turning up. Can we discuss who shot Junior? Who shot Junior? Yeah. Oh, what? Who, who actually pulled the trigger? Go on. Well, I wasn't actually there to see the trigger get pulled, <laughs> yeah. right? But uh, it's it's somebody that I know well. Yeah. I know well. And people think it's for a whole variety of different reasons. It was to do with an ongoing thing anyway that was done how did Tam McGraw meet his end uh, strangely enough uh, he nearly made it two or three times uh, he survived uh, a bomb being defused under his car uh, a sniper hitting something else that target was it uh, Luckily, they a bulletproof vest on that, that somebody knew it, and it, I think, excuse me for being rude, but I think he got five or six really deep stab wounds up his arse. Oh, God. Uh, and his hips and his neck, uh, on, the, on the basis of that. But how he met his, how he, how he met his death, his wife was having, no, a secret affair, an open affair. And she took him to the hospital that morning for his checkup. When he's came back, went into his bed, she's made him tea and toast. <laughs> the boyfriend goes up, he's in the tea and toast, and starts to choke on the toast. So what we've been told about is the boyfriend's trying to do CPR, but I think he's blown outside his mouth going, <laughs> I know it's funny but it's, it's I know we should laugh but <laughs> right. and it was he wasn't right. comfortable getting that close to him even in a moment of life or death why is he even there <laughs> why is he in your wife's house for fuck's sake <laughs> right so anyway I think he's strangled so when he eventually died they'd done three autopsies on him because he's just back for a medical examination they think I've done something with his milk. <laughs> they think I've done something with something else. They may, may even think that I've paid the, the, the secret boyfriend to fucking strangle him, kid money. Anyway, they've done... They, they couldn't believe this asset's dead over a slice of toast. Considering, yeah. Considering everything <laughs> that he survived on. Yeah. So anyway, that is the whole story behind that. Oh. Did you put that in a movie? <laughs> but, but that, no. it wouldn't work. They go, that's an advert for Hovis. <laughs> or, or Mother's Pride or something like that. that. You can't be doing that. <laughs> the crust has it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should have put more butter on it. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, it, it, 
it's a strange way he died. Yeah. Uh, he was due to go and uh, play as a goalie. Mm. And he missed it. So being indicted for murder, facing a long prison sentence, mm. how did that affect you psychologically? Uh, on the first occasion I was arrested, uh, I'm a local boy in the area in Berlin. So normally we're going to get a cleaner's job or something like that. I knew something was strange when I seen it was something like out of Judge Dredd. <laughs> <laughs> Big overalls, numbers on the heart, no the hearts, visors, shields, dogs, and I thought, this has all changed since the last time. I never knew I'm on category. I never knew I'm getting marks right, <laughs> right <laughs> into this <laughs> fucking uh, Wendy and uh, probably a bit exhausted to be quite honest with you checking every 15 minutes what I do remember is woke, waking up the next morning and it was like <laughs> and the, the judge red soldiers again the shields open and a, a bowl comes through with porridge on it there's your breakfast <laughs> and all you've got on there is a chamber pot where you urinate you do your things on it and I want to get ready that for even. We'll get you in a minute. So it it became a bit of a strategy. They try to they psychologically have wars with me. Luckily, I was well experienced being a young offender. Totally reversed it back on them, and and kind of knew that what my position is, something's going to happen somewhere down the line. Uh, at that point, back in when you touched on earlier, when I was a teenager and the young offenders, <clears throat> the only way I could camp, the only, the only way I could drop the temperature in my body was take the pajama, pajamas off and lie naked, spread eagle on the floor and then turn over. Uh, and I denounced my religion at that time personally uh, because I asked for help and I never got it. But what I did understand is... Uh, you should hope other people ask for you and not be too selfish and asking for yourself. So I re-engaged back into it with Berlin. Read a lot of books, The Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Challenge One Religion. And it wasn't until the the main star witness, Dennis Woodman, who's got a history, his name was Wilkinson, away back in the past. Uh, I've been reading The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail. And some parts here interrupts your flow because it mentions... John chapter, so if you're familiar with the Bible, you know what it is. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's like, oh, fuck it, I'll read on a bit here. <laughs> and then someone will contact, look at Proverbs. So I need a Bible. I'm three months into this man, and I thought, well, it takes a big effort to ask for a Bible. Because you know what they're thinking, Sean. Eh? So anyway, I pressed the buzzer. Screw's gone. How can I help you? I said, uh, I'd like a Bible. You like what? I said, a Bible. And it's the quietest. The spy hole is usually a bit of metal. It's the quietest it's ever been put down. And I could hear. So the next thing, uh, doors open, there's a priest there. But the book that I'm reading, this Holy Blood and Holy Grail, was upside down on the, on the pillow. So I've looked at the priest and I went, didn't he take. <laughs> you to come here and give me this Bible, did it? He went, no, no, no. They've asked 
having to come and see, because they think this guy's going to chop himself. All I want to do is understand the rest of his work. <laughs> they don't know it. <laughs> right? And when I'm discussing it, <laughs> the, 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 the priest sees what I'm reading. Oh, you know, he, went into, he was like an exorcist. <laughs> That's bliss. Because it was an academic thesis on, was it Jesus on the cross? I'm a Catholic. I'm quite entitled to look at my own religion. Was it Jesus on the cross? You've got an academic thesis, archaeologists, open your mind to these sort of things, but I want to know what's in this Bible. And then he said, and this is, do you want to read the Bible for that? I went, yeah. I said, no, good, shut the fucking door. <laughs> and I did. I said, took you three months to come and see me. So that's what I got into with the, the mind games. I used to deliberately get books in so it was secure, we'd read it and go, was he doing reading that? Right, heavy duty books. But, uh, look, uh, brothers' cameras off and <laughs> big classic things. But they, and they would keep them because you think there's maybe a bit of hash in it. There's a bit of drug in it. And then it got to no hard copies. But uh, there was, I've got to say, honestly, there was really, really good prison officers. People call them screws. And there was really, really bad prison officers. Did the reading take your mind off? Your predicament? No, I'd been used to solitary uh, and myself. Uh, it's it's part of my life. But when you get in there, that is your life. So what I learned very on early on, and as young offenders, you kind of build barriers up. Your vision is that wall. Forget about looking past that wall. Your vision's that wall. That's your life. Uh, Visits were hard, and, and I talk about visits. And I talk about the visits where uh, you're sitting there as a prisoner, either your wife, your mum, your parents, or your kids are there. See when they walk up, when they stand up and walk out that door, you've gave yourself that sentence. The judge has not done it for you. And that's one of the hardest one, ones to take. You know, so... Uh, visits I go and, and the segregation unit were behind a bulletproof screen uh, in case what was said, I've got somebody to bring up a firearm to escape. And I laughed at it and I said, do you realise that me trying to escape was an admission of guilt? (laughs) 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 He didn't believe that one. So all all my visits were non-contact, non-human, non-nothing. That was up for eight months. Oh, that was your missus coming to visit? Did she... Well, oh, what, what they done is I kind of had, had, had an issue. It's, it's common knowledge. I did have an issue with, with my partner at the time, and I was seeing somebody else. And what I done is I sent a, a, a visiting slipper with, with, with a need for new clothes on it, and the screws swapped. They did that. No. They did that. They did. So I'm, I'm on this visit. My partner Anne Marie came up this time. She's asked me questions, and I thought, "What are you getting at?" She poked the letter out, put it right on the window. Who's this? And I thought, "Say, we've had domestic issues. Uh, she's prob- probably you've got her letter, and she's got your." But somebody done it. Somebody done it, and the guy who's sitting listening to the, the visit, I've turned around and I went. I'll be speaking to you in a minute. So when that visit's left, they said, do you want exercise? I went right out into the yard. I said, if you're man enough, go and pick the guy that swapped his letters and tell him to come out here. We'll sort this out. 
and see if you don't, I'll be doing something about it, which I did do. So you found out who it was? No, I had an idea who it was, but I went back into Glenoco wolf mode with a bucket of shit. (laughs) 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 So whoever it was, it might not be them, but somebody had to tidy the office up. And then they'll go to ask, why was that? And then somebody's go to then and ask, why would you want to swap letters? Psychological warfare. You just revert back into, it's not nice, don't get us wrong, I don't like doing it, but <laughs> if you go and punch one of them or use a shank, or what, you get another 10 year. Mm. Would you say the guards respected you in prison? Half and half did. Half and half did. They did. Uh, people knew me as lo- lo- the local boy. Uh, I was never physically well built uh, to go and roll about them. <laughs> I remember one occasion where I thought, it's going to kick off here. All I've got is a, a bottle of undiluted orange. And I'm thinking, right, I'm pouring that over the floor, put shampoo over the floor. First one that comes in, I'm going to kick them right up there. But I've got prison shoes on. Do you know the crocodile ones that you get? You might have seen them. Probably at 99 pence each. <laughs> but I thought, I'm going to... When I went to kick this guy, uh, this prisoner officer, I fell. <laughs> I'm lying face down, smelling us arms and fucking shit <laughs> and shampoo. Yeah. The next thing I've been dragged mm. out, uh, took into the uh, the quiet cell, <clears throat> and you know how they lay you on your your belly, mm. and then they, they get one arm up there, up there, and then they bring your legs up. And oh then, yeah, and then they hold. One and they go, right out. That's after they take all your clothes off you. Right? So I'm naked. This one guy's holding my two hands and, and, and my, my leg. You know how it works, mm. right? But the minute I let you go, it's like elastic. So I've, I've jumped up and, uh, and I thought, how the fuck did I get here? Standing bollock, <laughs> smelling a <of> shampoo, and <laughs> it all went wrong. So I went over to the, the cell door. And uh, somebody tried to lift it quietly. <laughs> and I looked at, looked at this big screen and I went, Wah! and I've kicked the door. It was a young prison officer. Mm. And I said, look, I've calmed down. Get me my clothes back and we'll, we'll sort this out. And they did. They were fine. They went, you sure about that? I gave me a word. <laughs> and then when they opened the door, I got my clothes back. I said, I might have a job for you when you get out. That was really good how you done that. <laughs> <laughs> it was called, uh, they're called Mufti. Right, it's an acronym for minimum use of force restraint technique. Mm. But the minimum use of force says depending who's fucking bending your arms up. It's sore. It's sore. It's painful, but it's not. There's no bones broke. It's just how professionally they they done it. Mm. I, I, I give them to give them credit. It was professional. No punches, no kicks. Just in there. You get clothes on one minute. Next thing you're. That bollock, <laughs> like a turkey. <laughs> then, then they let you go. So, were you confident of beating the murder case? I never knew for all the evidence. As I knew mm. uh, my defence counsel, and the only time I was ever strongly aware of what it was. Go back to this Bible again. It's a Gideon's Bible. Uh, people like to look at what your star sign is for that day and all the rest of it. <clears throat> this Bible is Gideon Bible. 
had an almanac at the back. So doesn't matter what year it is, January the first is always January. You're familiar with that, Sean, eh? Yeah, yeah. So I've I've sat at this trial thinking this is going to get stopped shortly. I don't even know the guy. I've never spoke to him. <clears throat> it's impossible how that. I'm trying to work out how they're going to do it. Right? Mm. And then he swore on his two kids' dead ashes that he's telling the truth. And I, I couldn't even look at the jury. Honestly, I just thought, do you know what? How the fuck am I going to explain this one? Going back up to uh, to Bellini. And as soon as they opened the cell door, I went, I went in. I got a piece of paper. I don't know how I'd, how I'd done this. It just wrote something. I wrote about Peter Sutcliffe. I don't know everything about Peter Sutcliffe. I know the, the thing. Peter Sutcliffe killed every other woman apart from his own wife, Sonia. So there must be some mechanism in these people that protects the family. And that thread allowed me to believe in their thesis for Donald Finlay the next day to say he's either not got kids or the kids are alive and well. Because mm. he's not going to desecrate, who's going to desecrate the, the, the kids' ashes? So, one, i done that thesis and then I thought, right, what have I read today? This is the biggest point. I've opened the almanac. I'm going to get the pages. I'm going to get the numbers because it's important for me to tie this date down, right? I've opened it up and it's, it was to read the proverbs, aren't they? And the proverb was, do not feel the serpent that's, that, that, that bears false witness against you. No, do not feel the serpent with a forked tongue that bears false witness against you. I dropped the fucking hand. <laughs> I dad, I went out in an electric shock and I thought, mm. I need to read that again in case I go to the wrong day. So I'm armed with the, the thesis for Donald Finlay. I get a massive amount of courage for somewhere and going, I'm having a go at this. Just, I look for signs. And, and it was just, when I went and, and presented it, what I never knew is my lawyer, Peter Forbes, and Donald Finney had already requested the attendance of this guy's ex-wife. So again, my head's in bits. I'm sitting in... The, the, the doc. Now here's this name being called that's never ever on a witness list. I used to send Donald Finney notes to ask different things. As I sent him a note, as in, I think I wrote, who the fuck is this? And he turned around and went, it was Dennis Wilkinson's ex-wife. And I never knew at the time. So when she went into the witness box, I seen the, the prosecution went to stand up. The judge had made a motion, sat there. He took his wig off and had a chat. I'm thinking, this is surreal. But what he said to her is, uh, how long were you married to your ex-husband? It was a couple of years. Have you got any kids? Yeah, there are two kids, boy and a girl. Uh, long have you been separated? I think it was like 18 months or something. Have you got any, has your husband got any kids with anybody else? And she's went, no. Right. So when would your ex-husband would have known the kids were alive and well? And she said, last week we sent him letters and photographs. Oh, wow. And I've looked at the jury and went, 
It's a fucking joke. They should have stopped the trial. Yes. They should have stopped the trial. Just a farce. But further on, I couldn't believe what the trial judge said to the jury. He said, sometimes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, even the worst liars may tell the truth sometimes. <sighs> they had so much money invested in it, didn't they? As well? It's a farce. <sighs> People talk it was the biggest long. It's a farce. You you take away all that evidence, what have they got? They did nothing. Absolutely. It should never even went to trial. How do you feel when the verdict came down? Uh, do you know what? There's a story about that. There's a story about it. I get loads of stuff, loads of confidence for reading material that I was reading. Uh, when I seen the jury coming in, there was this girl who was crying and I thought, <laughs> they fell for this. So I'm getting ready for the fact that I'm not going to shout and bawl. I'm not. It's got to accept us. It's just another one. My head's elsewhere until I hear, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Not guilty. And do you know what I found that day? I failed a test. I never kept my faith to the end of it. Mm. And see the minute I recognised that, I'm sorry, it came back. <laughs> and then when I'd seen the lawyers and they said, there's a crowd out there for, you need to go and face it. Say what you've got to say. Ask for a public inquiry. And the activities, he would, man, nobody are going to get it. Or any at all at that because they don't like to air the dirty laundry in public, but I will and continue to do it. So, there's a one that they've done the scandals at Shop Scotland. It was introducing somebody like that as a witness. I hope they all got the sack. When you got found innocent, Paul, how did that affect you physically? The relief from facing a life sentence? Physically, it was, it was strange because I had the belief. Uh, weeks and weeks before it, uh, about the strength I got through my solitude, my reading, uh, the, the kind of Machiavellian stuff that they were trying to do. I've seen it all before, but this was really the coming close. So I had to be confident, confident in myself. And one of the surreal things that happened was the police officers that take you to court, it's usually the same ones. So you've got the outriders, the motorcyclists, you've got the van and you've got another van and the helicopter and all the rest. So the people in the van, the police officers in the van, one of them happened to say to me, uh, Paul, do you think this trial will last until the end of June? And I thought, I can hope no. <laughs> I says, I'm going to the Bahamas on the 12th. <laughs> and they look and they laugh and they go, I went and at half past three. And they laughed, they had a joke. That was maybe three weeks before all this, right? Wow. Right, so uh, the jury retired on the 11th. Oh, day, the because of the nonsense they've heard, to, 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 somebody's, somebody's sworn the kid's ashes. Don't do that with a Glasgow audience. Don't do that with, when I say a Glasgow audience, don't do it with people who are, are well-tuned into fucking violin stories. So that's a big no-no. Uh, so that in itself, I, I had an idea that's, that's going to go bad for the prosecution. But uh, on the 11th of uh, June, in the cells all day, walking up and down, waiting for a verdict, waiting for a verdict. Nothing, so I get to it back. Uh, 
in particular. But what I did, what I did there, I knew on the 12th, I don't know why I knew, I knew I was going home. People say that you must have had the jury sorted. It was just my belief in my system and what I heard at the start. I couldn't look at the jury at the start. There were so many charges that, that I'm supposed to have confessed. No, they know. So I left a note on the desk in my prison cell with a couple of packs of biscuits and chocolate. And I said, in the event that I'll be off to Bahamas, have a bit of tea and biscuits. <laughs> I think I left it. And it came back to haunt me a wee bit because... What, I, no, I did, seriously. So I went back down and... Uh, uh, right there the, the, uh, on the 12th, spent another half a day, got the lunch, came back up to court, uh, and, and I'm thinking, I've just, I'm gone. I just hear the verdicts. And, and what, what made me feel as though I've not got the strength to accept this, I know, but I ain't going to shout and ball. If it happens, I ain't accept it. I know people have been in the same position like Tommy Campbell, Joe Steele, and what are you going to do? Shouting, make a mug yourself. So I've seen two of the people coming in crying and body language. My confidence went, completely went. I'm just thinking, waiting for this, fuck it, get me down the stairs. And then I heard the verdicts. And as I'm hearing the verdicts, I'm thinking, you've just failed a test. <laughs> you've not kept that to the end. But when I'm asking myself again, do you really apologise for not keeping your, this faith? If you have got an honest answer, strength all came back. Not only the strength came back, a bit of humour came back. Because when I was when they said, right, you're free to go, as I walked down the stairs, I look at the clock, it's quarter to four. <laughs> right, there's an escort there. There's an escort there waiting to take me back. And as soon as I seen them, I went, I've got an apology to make to you and they're going, what, what for? I said, it was 15 minutes out. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I had the jury novel. <laughs> that was just a throwaway thing, that sort yeah. of, just something like that. So when uh, I got took into the main chambers with Donald Finlay, <laughs> he opened the curtain and went, have a look at that. And I, I'm wondering why there are all, all these people there. Because I'm in solitary confinement, I don't know. Most of them were all family, friends. It was like a spectacle to do what they're doing. I don't know I'm going to get out. And uh, when you see me standing on the stairs talking to, to the media, before that, there's a guy called Stevie Wilkie who was the senior crime author, uh, crime writer for, I'm sure it was a Sun newspaper or the, or the News of the World. And because I'm free, and, and I, he said, Paul, will you give us an interview? I said, Steve, you got a car out there? He's went, yeah. I said, look at that. <laughs> because at that time, and I'll admit it again, I was asked to keep a, a, a diary with my solicitor. And what I had in the diary was just honest stuff that I had to write. But what I wrote in the diary was about personal stuff that, the girl who used to come up and give me clothes every day, I had different clothes every day for a trial, uh, that, that I, I went away from my ex-partner. I was now living with this girl. But I wrote something in the diary that I found that when I went back to see my kid and my ex-partner, I felt, why did I leave? 
And then there's a reason why I should believe him, because it just creates a bit of static. And then I was just with this other girl and then thinking, what am I doing here? So I'm trying to write it in best as terms I can in this diary, because it's got to go to the solicitor. So what I've wrote in, is in it, uh, I found myself in a position, a weak position. I'm no strong enough to tell them both that I love them. And that was a, 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 an honest opinion. So there was a lot of other stuff in the diary. They uh, eventually seized the diary anyway. And, uh, I'm, and, and I'm in the witness box. And at this time, the two girls don't really know about each other. Right? So the... <laughs> I know I'm laughing, I shouldn't be laughing at this one. But the prosecution, he goes away over, stands at the end of the, next to the jury and says, production such and such, which was the diary. So I guess, I think he's going to go for something. Hmm. He said, uh, go to page, whatever page it was. So I've opened this page up and it starts, I couldn't find it in my heart to tell them both I love them. Oh. Right? He's trying to make me a, a love rat because there's six females on the jury. So they said, uh, could you read the, the production such and such, read page such and such. I've mumbled. <laughs> and he's at the end there going, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. So I've, I've just kind of blanked him and looked right up at the gallery and read it and apologised. So when I'm getting out, the relevance is with Stevie Wilkie. I couldn't go to one without embarrassing another. I just I had to sort myself out. And what was the repercussions of you having to repeat the diary? No, no, sentence? no. I think both both of them had an idea, but it's it's it's. I'm, I'm still friends, you know, really, still friends. I've not spoke for many many years, but but for me, everything that was in the diary. He picked up on it, and I thought, "You fuck off. Whoa, that was a that was a hard one." But uh, <laughs> the, the strange thing about it, the, the next day, the two of them are sitting next to each other, and where was he? I, I can imagine what's happened. Was he in London? Was he? So they're getting it, or they know about it all now. But at that stage, I could not personally go and embrace one, but with it. Without embarrassing another, that's why you see me making a kind of <laughs> short sprint to this the the, the vehicle with Stevie Wilkie. So I went for there and gave them uh, an interview. I never took any money f- for the interview. Uh, I done it on the basis that <laughs> get me away for that now. That's all right. What was your life like after you got out? Yeah, what was the first uh, thing you did after your release? Uh, no, there was quite a lot of press interest. There was a lot of people wanted jump on and say a few things and people made the assessment that uh, oh he'll disappear anyway I stayed in Glasgow for a year I've got two friends that have got two partners two wives that uh, they were good enough for there for me I ain't running away of anything did stuff kick off again uh no <laughs> no, nobody wanted to know after that. Okay. It was just that there was a spurious uh, Crown Office letter that was manufactured with a guy called John Gallagher, along with Thompson Jr. Said I'd been working with the authorities for years. That that letter was used to put through 
defence witnesses, the letterbox, just to let them know should they go to trial. But I used that for my defence. I got the alleged author that was supposed to have signed that and said, because apparently there was a DX number on it that shouldn't be on it. It's old stock and it wasn't his signature. And it, show, it shows and demonstrates more about them that they can't have a, have a fight without having to kind of uh, reduce somebody's character uh, for for whatever reason. So uh, they tried a lot of t- different tactics, but the fact that uh, Thompson Sr. died a heart attack, he, he actually died on one of uh, my friend's wife's birthday. And was was it at the pub? Like the film. No, 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 it wasn't in the pub, but they couldn't show the whole thing about it. And the whole real story uh, was it was too long. He took a heart attack. By the time the ambulance got there, the defibrillators never worked because nobody charged them up. Whether they did work or no, we don't know. But uh, he did, he did uh, die in, in, in his house. Is it quite an early demise? I think he was 60. Uh, I think he was 61. Mm-hmm. 61. What happened to his empire? Crashed and burned. Crumbled. She was Darth Vader. That <laughs> 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 yeah, was one of the ones. That, it was all myth, the, the empire that he had and all the rest of it. I, I know, I was in the, the, the kind of close circle. Mm. It was it was loads of myth. They had quite a few quid. They, they were, were quite wealthy and doing what they're doing, but... Why go through all that misery? Not enjoy spending it and treating people like that. So the empire, there wasn't that much an empire. It was media-led stuff and all the rest. No, for me, maybe it did. I don't know. But uh, not a lot of people seen any uh, invoices coming back. So we interviewed, me and Wildman interviewed an ex-Scotland cop who gave a Paul Ferris story mm. Do you have a different version of events of that story? Was that the officer that was in Rossi? It is, sorry, what is it? Um, the, it was a very, it was a four, I think it was a four hour podcast we did with the cop. Was we, that the one that, uh, meanwhile, oh, I did see it, I did see it. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what, I was, what I found strange about it is that uh, the cognitive awareness, his employment as an evidence gatherer, should have been spot on. Whether he's been a young cop that's just been told, bear in mind, he's the main firearms expert for the island. He's been told, you're not getting a gun. What he also admits is there was four guns. Only three was ever signed up during the course of that. But what he did get wrong was, and I liked his attitude a wee bit, uh, they never chapped the door. There's two storm doors that just came in. There was a... I was in the living room with my partner, who was six months pregnant at the time, watching a football game. I've got a pair of tracksuit bottoms on and a T-shirt. That's it. No nightgown, as he said. No goonie. No. I think he's having a bit of a laugh. Uh, so immediately, we, and they'd done it professionally, spun in the air, face down, handcuffs, into the room. The next thing, there's a green bank bag there. Who's the brown powder? You can't tell what colour of powder it is. Unless you know you brought it there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but the snub note 38, but that was true because uh, 
I knew about finance. I still know about finance. It's, it's something which uh, this cop who's six feet six, snowy white hair, pushing it right out of my mouth. I know it's fucking him because half, half my face is looking up. What saved me at that time is uh, my partner walked out and let a scream up. They never knew there was a W. There was, there was, there was a, never knew there was a female in there. And it all went by. We got a WPC. They kept on the cells as well over the weekend. So that particular thing, I don't criticise him. I think maybe his knowledge and his memory goes on. And he should remember this one, that the, the earliest you take a statement, it's clearer for what it is for the longevity of the time. He got the drug drawn. It wasn't the cocaine, it was heroin that I got uh, fitted up with. And the reason why I got fitted up with heroin was because it was a high purity. And anything that was getting a high purity, they calculate it then and it's worth thousands then. But the irony is, I'm on the run, on an island, <laughs> that probably, there's no heroin addicts. <laughs> I don't know, you take it, if I did have it, uh, then there would have been, the way I was arrested and thrown to the ground. Uh, but we got an independent toxicologist done uh, to describe it. The, the, what he's actually done is took the like a credit card folder out, threw it in the ground, then put it in it. Right. And then they found money in another room, a couple of hundred pounds, it's survival money. For... So they've come in and put all the productions on the one bag. So they've seized my clothes for an attempted murder. So the police have got it. I've got to change the clothes. When I met the solicitor at the court, he read out the charge. He says, you did have in your possession diamorphine or intended supply. And I thought, I never did it. But the job of telling him how it got there, he made an application to seize my clothes. Right? Because you've got an open and shut bank folder. You've got a bank bag, a green bank bag that I think it was designed for either 10 pence pieces or 20 pence pieces. So you're going to get spillage from that bag into that folder that's no an airtight container that's just open folder. And if that was in my pocket, the way I'd been arrested, spin up, done, there would have been movement somewhere. So they've checked the bag <clears throat> and during the course of the the evidence ferocity even the cop who fitted me up put his finger Donald Finlay said can you put your finger inside that bag what colour's your finger uh, light green alright so now we've got the fail the a glass fail with a brown powder in it put that in what colour's that he's like brown <laughs> <laughs> right now we've got the top forensic toxicologist for Glasgow University. He's got a white piece of paper and a black piece of paper. If you put the white piece of paper on, what colour is it? He said, uh, light green. Put the dark piece of paper on it, what colour is that? Dark green. He said, could you tell if there was brown powder on that? He said, unless it was dark green or light green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, and the the tracksuit pocket was forensically examined uh, till a thousand times thinner than a human hair they never found nothing in the pocket what they done they found it in the, in the folder so it explains how it got in the folder 
<coughs> Jury seeing through it, found not guilty. That was lucky with that. Up against five cops, saying that they found it. Wow. They didn't like that one. That I used forensics against them. Mm. So the Rossi episode was that one. And what caused you to finally go on the straight and narrow? Yes. Me? <laughs> uh, quite easy. Uh, it took me roughly two months sitting in Belmars in 1997. Apparently there was a legal remit where you can get fast-tracked on, on a, a quick trial. You don't need to wait for them, man. To this solicitor who was nominated turned up with boxes and boxes of stuff. And I thought, that's really quick. And he went, what is? I said, the case files. He said, no. He said, that's your supergrass statements. <laughs> that's your super, supergrass statements. <laughs> it was all people who'd fucking... So you had the main manufacturer of the firearms t- 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 pointing the direction of this guy. This guy's pointing the direction. They're all like that. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, and there was surveillance reports on it. So when I'd seen all the MI5 stuff on it, when you're involved in criminality, you don't think you come to attention to these people. What I saw, what I heard, and what I've read, I thought, go on with my sentence, <laughs> put my hands up, and I'm going to go on straight. So that was the catalyst. So I've got to thank MI5 for that. They've actually mentioned me in their centenary, <laughs> the defence of the realm. 100 years in protection, just a small one. Uh, I actually told Ray Bird this about it, because you're looking for new material. What I, for, what I forgot to tell him was what page it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I phoned him up one day and I said, Reg, how are you getting on with uh, the, Ray, how are you getting on with this, the, this book? Hold on, he caught me accent. He went, hold on a minute, Paul. I'm at page 1,300. And I laughed. <laughs> I said, you're still in the cold water. <laughs> Get this up and we're on it. So it's, it's nothing to be proud of, but that, we, we were the first uh, uh, non-terrorists in the UK uh, to be subject to MI5 surveillance. So that's that's why it's on it. Big stuff. Mm-hmm. When you got out of the lifestyle, did you miss the excitement? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or did I you replace I it with something else? I, 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 I replaced it with success. Mm. I replaced it with proving everybody wrong. The problem that I did face further down the line was uh, we went in the first year, turning out security company, we went the first year probably just under a quarter million. Second year, 3.6 million. Wow. Quite a jump. Third year, They've all panicked. <laughs> they sent a check back. Same I read this letter. It's for the bank manager. Fred Goodwin, him, it was Fred the Shred that's, that's, that was robbing. I'll rephrase that. I never robbed that. He invested money. He was a pretentious bank manager that did, obviously didn't like naturally growing fruit. So he'd get all his fruit thrown in for France. That's how pretentious he was. And he's the sort of guy that was after running the Royal Bank of Scotland at the time. His office sent a letter to my office stating, this is your cheque, we've closed your account, we've shut your balance, we don't need to tell you why. And I thought, is that, is that right? Is that right? And I'm supposed to be the villain. I never had any old ladies up smashing my windows saying, where's my pension money? He did. 
so that I've, I've mentioned that a few things. So there was a, a report about uh, allegations that were laundering money. Right? Anybody that knows what a factor situation is means that you surrender your invoices to a factor. They charge you with a fee. Right? I had to speak to the factor personally who was, who was running at the time. Told him the whole situation. He said, <coughs> Paul, <coughs> if you're money London, you must be the one of the fucking worst in the world. Because <laughs> <laughs> it says it gives you the money. <laughs> They're giving us 85% of the totality of the invoices. Now, we were working on the basis that we give the clients 30 days. You don't get paid in 30 days. 45, 60 is a maximum, right? But we need to pay guards' wages admin wages every week to know that if for us to get that facility we get it for factor and what he said to us is if we want to send you 200,000 pound can you the bank take it out they had the proof of funds we've got you there's no point in them asking you what you go to do with it because it's none of their business that's the point of origin we never use cash so then they went on another uh, situation where they got involved and the Security Industry Authority. Unfortunately, my convictions are never spent. Mm. So I can't get a licence. I can't get involved in this. But slowly, 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 slowly. So I played the game. Uh, still playing the game. Uh, I've had a, 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 a case officer for HMRC that we're dealing with for Liverpool. And uh, it's now all changed because Scotland's got its devolved powers to collect its own taxation. And I mistakenly opened the letter, think it was coming for Liverpool, and it was just threat after threat. You don't do this, we're doing that. You don't do this, we're doing that. I don't like it threatening for, for anybody at all. No. So I told them, you get it when I get it. So I, hate it. I, sold, the, I sold the farm. I've got all the legal stuff. It should have been concluded on the 12th of December. This year, uh, last year? No, no, this was in 2019. Okay. Uh, so I get, I get uh, a letter through, confirmation that it's all getting done and dusted. Then the lawyer phones up and said, do you realise I'm in a chain? A, a chain of the property. The people who will want to buy my farm have to wait until somebody has to sell their house before they sell theirs. And I'm thinking, what the fuck's that going to do with me? It's proof of funds. I said, so when are we sorting this then? Uh, 12th of February. I had no plan B. They fucked the whole Christmas up. It, it sounds as though I told the whole lies to HMRC. All they want is... When I used to deal with the, the Liverpool case agent, no, they were on first name terms, but they were civil on the basis, right, Paul, how much have you got and when did we get it? That's all they want to know. These ones were lit. You don't date this. It's a kind of threat. So I had to speak to my ex-partner, other people, to go, I've got to wait to fucking February for this one. Mm. So it was a... It was a bad take. If I knew I had to wait, I accepted it anyway. Plus, I sold it for 300000 less than what I bought it for. Mm. Just to pull the parachute. I want to buy it in my terms, which I did. Uh, difficult getting back there again. And, and this year, I'm going to 
crack on and do what they're doing. So I think what you guys do for your your interviews and your audience is getting the raw material for people that might be on a roller coaster. Somebody might be having the same problem or somebody has got worse problems than listening to him. He thinks he's got problems. What about us? Basically what it is is for an unscripted uh, interviews and what you do. And I, th- I, I like the line of questioning that you've done because it triggers uh, proper response and, and where we're going. So the fight still continues with me. Yeah. So what else have you got planned next? Uh, doing this six part. Yeah. Uh, we've got six part. Uh, what the problem, what I, I seen the Jack Pepper media was, uh, they're looking at investor stage in October. These investors are away on holiday for October, November, December, and they'll come back mid-January or the end of January to do what they're doing. That's, that's what they do. So they've got a working script. Uh, they've got a... They've, they've done, to be fair, they've done a documentary about Ricky Gervais, about how he started off his uh, XFM, his uh, radio career. Yes. And then they've done another one with uh, Irvin Welsh. Uh, so they're, they're, they're plugging away. But this is a big investment. You're probably talking about 1.2 million quid an episode to get it done. Wow. So basically what they're doing there is back into their uh, investor portfolio and then see how it, how it goes for that. Well, you mentioned you like this podcast. Did you not do a podcast with Mark Dempster, one of our podcast guests? Mark Dempster? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I tell you what, I've done, Mark, we, we, we have something called uh, Gritty Nitty. Yes. Right? <laughs> Mark's a brilliant guy, right? He's so funny. Right, Mark, yeah. he is, he is. Yeah. So, he said, Paul, we're starting up a, a new podcast uh, along with Mike Wimmett, Tosca Jackson, posh location right in uh, Harley Street. <laughs> yes. Right? And Mark's kind of special couch where he asks people questions. <laughs> Mark's funny. Yeah. Really, really nice. So I got asked as a guest to be on it. But that's the one I had with the baseball cap one. Trump. Ah. So the, the, just because of psoriasis. But yeah. the level of question, I thought it was totally different. But I, I, I felt that they could have had somebody in the chair. I mean, the, in the, the, the stories they're having a different. Michael Emmett's a brilliant talker. Yeah. He's great. Brilliant yeah. talker. Tosca Jackson. Never knew he was the guy that set off Kiss FM. Mm. Yeah. Big, big player. And I thought the balance between. Racial stuff, religious stuff we're going to be talking about. Drugs we're going to be talking about. Mm. Uh, Mark's stories about how he Um, he got kidnapped and robbed and (laughs) how he's still surviving. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, Mike Wemmer, brilliant guy. He was, his his dad was very Mm. friendly with with, with Kim's dad. So uh, it was a good format, but I felt that I, I couldn't commit to it. It's a full-time thing, isn't it? Well, no, it's not so much a full-time thing. It's just a feel without any repetition. You can tell one story, but you might forget about something. But obviously it comes into it. We had to be aware. What I wasn't aware of, that they all met through Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) So we met up at the sports bar near 
Victoria, and I get a double vodka and Red Bull. They're all of water, this <laughs> now. Right. I said, wrong? You want half it? No, no. And then they tell the story of how they met. Mm. I thought, all oh, right, yeah. I better just make that at the bar. <laughs> but no, really, good fun. I don't think, the reason why I don't think they're getting the numbers mm. is because whoever's doing the upload, Steve, mm. I don't think he's keyed into the algorithm. He's putting the name he with us for the podcast. He's no using the algorithms a the names, Michael Emma, Mark Dempster, me, and that should be a primary one. It's all Just, keywords. Mm. You, you know that yourself. John, mm. you're in it. You're a, a numbers game. John, you, yeah. you know that as well. Massive And, and, and obviously for your audience, as they know that. And the guests that you bring on, like me and other people, mm. uh, is for a reason. I've got projects that I'm wanting to explore and talk about, maybe later on, mm. but... I did owe you an interview. Mm. Uh, there was two or three I'd done with James English. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one I got offered was to do the Lad Bible, and mm. I thought it would be a bit of an insult, personal insult, but then that without having to facilitate this one. So mm. maybe you can contact your guys and say, right, that's done, or unless you want me back for re-editing. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you've not asked enough questions, Jen, you never know. Oh, exactly. I've got to ask them, what was your fondest memory of Glasgow growing up? Talk about all the darkness. The fondest memory of Glasgow growing up. My dad taking me as a kid down to watch my football team parading the European Cup. I was only a kid, but I can't remember it. I remember the crowd and cheering. And the, for that, it was a big, big event. That would have been 1967, or when they'd done the tour, 1967. Uh, there's a few good memories, but I did drop something in last night, uh, a, a tweet. Uh, I'm on Twitter because somebody was pretending to be me years ago. <laughs> and I kept reading this and people were saying, oh, that, that was really good, you done in Twitter. I said, are you fucking on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> so when I read through the conversation, it was funny. And people were saying, Paul, I've not seen you for a while, here's my phone number. Mm. And, and whoever's sitting at the back, could be a female, I don't know. Mm. So I had to make Twitter aware. I had to send my passport, copy the passport, prove who I am, delete his account, and I get one for nothing in mm. 2011. <laughs> so I've started all that. And uh, i done an archive search last night on old photographs of Black Hill. And nothing's really changed as much apart from the aesthetic new buildings. Uh, the people who, the people who run the city, the previous people who run the city, the previous people who used to police the city, not so much the ones that are currently policing it just now. It was a town called Malice. And I put it on, it's a jam, it's a, a favourite track for me. So obviously about another town somewhere, but that is my kind of slap towards city council, police, what they've done, there's nothing changed. And I'm trying to get involved in rehabilitation projects and things like that. I know the problem. The problem is they've got to, they've got to explain their wages and how long they've been getting it for. Mm. Because if I find out about it, I want to know what you've been doing. 
And what changes can get made? So where can people find the real Paul Ferris online? Uh, it's on embryonic just now. We've got a, a, a company, a CIC company, uh, based in Stoughton Trent. Uh, the main figurehead is, is Phil Mayer. And what we have got is something in which to uh, look at the last 12 weeks of somebody's prison sentence uh, so that we can make sure they've got accommodated. All it is, they get, you know yourself, they open the door, there's £45 in a grant, they're, they're away to see their dealer. They might not even have somewhere to sleep. We don't deal with sex offenders, we don't deal with informers, we deal with people, maybe long term, just no matter the length of their sentence. Give us their 12 weeks, we'll show them how to cook, paint and decorate, all these intensive stuff for the discipline that I got for the detention centre. 12 weeks enough. And then we give them vouchers to go and buy. The, we want to show them what they can do with potatoes, uh, pasta, rice, make their own dishes and forget phoning up Uber Eats because that's a fiver for a start. <laughs> yes. Go and get your stuff. Mm. Make them a bit more self-sufficient. Uh, I think there's m- more in a, a, a receptive nature in, in England to get things done than there is in Scotland. There's too much politics with me. Fully accept that. I've not been an angel, but don't think they have either. Mm. And uh, if I get an opportunity to share some dirty laundry about them, I'll certainly hang it up. Slay the bloody lids off. That's the way it goes. <laughs> it's a fight. <laughs> yeah. It's a fight. It's a verbal fight, but produce the goods. One person had said to us, Paul, we admire your position, no doing it, but do you know think that you're uh, dismissing the people who are currently in prison that are due to get out? Why are you denying them? that opportunity and then I thought that's a fair point so I might date simultaneously to see where it is mm. we're a private investor mm-hmm. because the minute you take you've, you've interviewed Bobby Cummins no no Mm-mm. no Bobby Cummins his favourite saying is Paul you take government money you're going to dance to their tune mm-hmm. a private investor go and do what you've got to do it. so that that's the aim the goals and the objectives for, for this year. So you're a prolific author, Paul. Have you got another book in you? I have, funny enough. It's not an on-crime one. Uh, we started doing it. Uh, what I normally do is record. And there's an issue, there's an embarrassing issue. We've had everyone on a, on a data stack that's lost maybe 20, 30 hours worth of stuff. I ain't going to mention who had it, but it's a close family member. Oh, no. That, that's gone. So we've got to start again. But the whole, the whole theme of the book is, is taking on uh, a journey uh, on 21 years of being free of crime. I get released in January the 21st, 2002. A couple of small issues in between them, but not, no custodial sentences. And I think it's a roadmap ahead towards <clears throat> somebody think they can come out of prison and change in two or three years. I've been out 21 years and they're still saying, this rehabilitation's all a myth. Let's educate people. Let, let them cook for themselves. If they've got a leak in their shower, go and fix it. You know, forget this fiver for Uber Eats. For, look at your, your value and what you're doing. And, and in some occasions, people have went through their lifetime, never had a certificate. We'll give them 
our NVQ skills to an extent mm. under that 12 week period. So I'm looking for partners to come on to provide these certain things. Uh, and what we intended to do was build uh, 32 one bedroom flats that have took probably 18 months and the cost in 4.6 million quid. Mm. I've actually met somebody who'd said, we can alleviate all your problems. I can get 40 caravans done there within three weeks. Fair. As long as, the reason for the flats, you'd never get planning for it, but as long as it's for vacational residents, <clears throat> you need the hub there. Mm. So Street Pulse will be kicking it uh, at some point this year and thanks for giving us an opportunity to, to plug it and see what it goes for there. Um, and check out Paul's um, audio book, Unfinished Business, that he did with Steve Rafe, which is our bestseller at Gadfly Press every month. It's the, it's the best-selling <laughs> audio book. The, 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 <clears throat> I think we, we gave the, 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 the narrator uh, quite a hard opportunity to read the, the true transcripts of the audio tapes that we got. I think if we either anglify it <laughs> or put, or put uh, subtitles up, it, it could work, could not work. But we're going to get back and visit that one. The, 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 the new book that we're, that we're going to be doing is, again, titled Unfunny's Business, but the business here is, is the subtitle. Mm. On the journey uh, from prison, talking about Fred the Shred, the security, the how difficult it is just to get a national insurance number again, people believe in you, spewy stuff that's in the newspapers, the SIA criticising you for something I've done in the past. Mm-hmm. So how can you how can you inform when you've got all that, the, these things catching up with you? There's too much politics. I'm glad I came down to visit uh, in England when I sold the farm. Never came down to stay. Covid kicked in, and I spent the first <laughs> Covid feet of laughing. I shouldn't laugh again with my old aunt who's ninety, who's get the head of a twenty-one year old. She's good fun. Ah, oh, boy. Yeah. She's kept me on my toes. Love her. Absolutely love it. So I'm here for the duration. Uh, and strangely enough, uh, I came back to visit in Scotland quite recently, and my cousin came and said to me, "Paul, how do you feel? Do you feel you've left?" home or are you coming back home and I thought I feel I'm coming back home mm-hmm. she's went well that's a good sort remember to put the bins out in the morning because <laughs> <laughs> I did a couple of things for her it was really good she's on a come over you've you, you, you back come anyway yeah yeah we come Anne Lewis uh, 165 acre estate uh, it's massive just for privacy walking about uh, just helping out as best I can yeah. And, and hopefully I've got another time there and, and do what I'm doing. But you might be, the, the invite's there to come over. We definitely will. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, bro. Thank you. Having been involved in knife crime, what do you say to the young people watching this who might have gangsteritis? Uh, knife crime? I can only work on an experience where some people have a knife for comfort just so they can go to the shops. But the problem that you've got, if you've got a knife, you're going to use it. But if you ain't got a knife, you ain't gonna, you've not got that comfort blanket. Where, where does it stop? But I, I'm not gonna be a hypocrite and say about the anti-knife. There is a lot of anti-knife crime campaigns, uh, one in particular, 
uh, knives done, gloves up, all these shorter ones uh, that, that are doing it. But you get this amnesty. They used to have the amnesty in Glasgow. I'm not saying it's it's a stage throw. They go out and buy them, throw them in the bin, and then make something out of them. But uh, there's ten of theirs. We've still got to what they're doing. It's a cultural, cultural thing. There is a, the only way I could see it probably is having all the high tech stuff. If you walk through it and it goes off, you've got some. That's it. Because what you've got there is maybe somebody who's been told they're going to get it has went, by who? We can't tell you. Well, I'm having this because it's my protection. Or somebody's never the threat saying we need it. And I'll give you an example. <clears throat> this is a recent example for London. I'm going out to buy tobacco. I have roll up tobacco. There's a corner shop that I can see on the main road. I go to walk across the road. My nephew grabs my arm and said, no, 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 Uncle Paul, we'll, we'll use this shop. And right away I thought, he's shoplifted, he's next summer to his band. So we walked down, get the tobacco. So on the way back up and having a roll up, and I've asked him, have you been banned out there, have you been shoplifting? He went, no. He said, that's another territory. If we cross that road, we will get stabbed. If they cross, that's a postcode lottery, that's how close it is. Normally it was the North London, East London, South London, West London. It's a postcode lottery. Uh, the only the only people that, that can figure all this out is you could probably say community leaders, but you need like the like Marvin Herbert. I don't know if it, he goes on one and but he, he's got a voice because it's something which that he's been in there. He's lucky to be alive, but the problem is you can have a great message. People need to respect the source before they accept the message, uh, and I'm not going to be a hypocrite saying. Oh, you shouldn't be carrying a knife, guys. If you feel the need to carry a knife to protect yourself, what do you want to be a hermit? Mm. If they've not got a knife, they're going to get a gun. Mm. And if they've not got a gun or a knife, they're going to get a sword. Or they're going to get axe. Anything to feel comfortable. But it's like that, that game. It's not a game, it's like Crocodile Dundee. Right, give us your wallet. That's not a knife, son. That's the knife. The things that they're pulling out, was for use for trailing bushes in the fucking Amazon. Never mind fighting. So to, to get up with one of them, I think it dawns on them when somebody's lost a life, and then it's a gang culture. Then it's all about I never done it. They done it collectively. They all done it, and and it's only when they're in prison, having that thing again. What like I, I said to you earlier, when the family get up and walk out that's their sentence and some of these boys would would, would IPP independent fucking sentences where they've not got a date uh, so that backlog it's creating through the violence and all the rest of it it's creating gangs mm. and, and prison you won't get knives in prison of course you do make your own but for the young ones spend more time looking for something that can get your wage and keep off the green because it'll 
don't date recreationally, I'm not going to, I smoke it. <laughs> I mean, if I need to carry a knife, I would carry a knife, but I don't. Uh, the young, young people, they know what they're doing, it's just, I don't know. If they get enough respect for people in their community, they'll listen. Or this amnesty thing makes a lot of people look good and all mm. the rest of it. If an individual's want, the problem is you get, mate, get one guy saying, Do you know what, I'm going to listen to what was said there. I'm going to drop my knife, I'm going to give it all up, and he's at the shops the next day and gets stabbed to death. Um, yeah. Catch 22. And he's on it. And the people that are using knives, I don't believe they set out to kill people. Some of them might, but you had a wrong tendon somewhere, you hit someone to mm-hmm. want to bleed to death. Mm-hmm. So what my, what my words to them would be, think about the next 20 years and then look back, because that's what you're going to get. Yeah. Mm. That's what you're going to get, guaranteed. If you want to spend the next 20 years not seeing your family, eating prison food, damn you go today, can't even go to the shops, Mm. think about it just for a short period of time mm-hmm. try and stay in it a weekend then think how many weekends that you're never going to get out whether that's receptive enough but one of the main uh, issues that we're going to use for street pulse <clears throat> is we've got a, an independent mandatory drug testing mm. uh, facility because we don't want to be accused of massaging with rain figures Mm. for the drug test so the, one of the ones we've got that done I'm sure it was the ladies world cup team mm. or they're, they're, they're highly elevated very well got in the, in the community on the basis that if we get people in that group that are testing negative the chances are they're listening mm. so all the advice you want to go and have a meeting in community halls and all the rest of it you're probably looking at the watch going like, oh, we need to go and get a fucking rock. We need to go and... <laughs> that's the truth. No listening to this. The who you attend it. But if you've got somebody that is want to change their life, go off the drugs as best you can. I've been on it. I, I was an expert. Not an expert. I was experimenting on different things and all the rest of it. Uh, addiction is in the mind. You can get a physical addiction. You can get a mental addiction. But what you have got is the power to say, stop it. But sometimes the power to say, stop it, they'll jump on something else. But at least it's not as tolerant until they get run and make uh, a decision. But the younger ones growing up want to be the gangsters, the, the teenagers. The teenagers want to have all the money that the boys in the street are getting. And the older ones are sitting back going, yes. look, at, look at the carnage. Look at the carnage. And then, no long after that, you've got the same young boys sitting in a cell with no date on their, their, their door card. Mm. They're in there. And then they'll go to the other courses. and it's, <clears throat> They're putting these people into purgatory. Mm. Seriously. But, uh, what is the intervention rate? Probably nothing. Did People look, like us that's been in, in prison, we, they know we're no involved in authorities. You think somebody's going to sit down and have their whole conversation with a social worker, a probation officer? It's not going to happen. But somebody on a one-to-one basis to have it, it's good. Uh, we'd probably implement something in Street Pulse 
with that, but I think there's too too many people with too many knife crime messages mm. that should either come together under one umbrella or stop fucking biting at each other. It's no it's not about politics, mm-hmm. it's about getting results. So you might have somebody with a message that thinks it's a message, but it's maybe no a message because people don't respect the source. Or, or you might have somebody with, with a catchy message that, that, that might be something else. But intervention, right now, don't see it. I honestly don't see it. But it's one of these cases that will get worse before it gets better. You might have another generation that's grown up and going, remember them at stabbing each other? Look what we've got, stun guns. <laughs> and so it could be a whole thing. I know we have a bit of a humour and, and, and light-heartedness about it. Mm. It's a big, big issue. There's no magic wand towards it because if you look at the... Even even that story with the shops, the local shops, street by street, you've got that in every city, and in every city in every country, and, and about the whole part of the country. Scotland did have a, a massive knife, knife crime. Uh, it had a semi-success, but it'll grow up, and it's all to do with... Has an individual got enough comfort in themselves to go out and face the world without the knife for protection? Mm. The problem you've got there is they might be physically well built that they could maybe smash two or three of them up, but there's a gang, there's a gang of hyenas that, that go, it might be, somebody might know, Want to use a knife? He might wave it about his protection and then run away. Mm. But if you've got a knife, you're going to use it. If you've not got a knife, it's hard to use it. And if you've not got a knife, there's, I, I know I took knives out as a comfort blanket for me. I know what it's like. Mm. It's no nice. It's no nice. So I'm not going to be a hypocrite saying leave your knives behind. They should. They should. But if they're going into public places, with other people. It's fine with the metal detectors on the door. Mm. Oh, what's that metal thing? I've got your belt on. I right, take your belt off. You should find a knife because they're not that size. They're mm. fucking samurai swords. <laughs> right, but it's it, it's a difficult one, yeah. uh, Sean, and I don't think there's any easy answer on it. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably find that by the time we're finished this interview or before the weekend's finished, there's, there's a couple of more fatalities. Definitely. Mothers looking to it's difficult, really difficult. Speaking of addiction, for God's sake, (laughs) you must be hungry by now, Paul. My latest addiction is Coro snacks for our sponsoring our podcast. Oh, excellent. Um, yes, well done. <laughs> <laughs> is that sponsoring your podcast? Yeah. yeah, they're great. So Hazelnut Protein Bar is my favourite right now. Jen has just ordered a hundred pounds worth of He's got issues. <laughs> that, I'm gonna keep one for later on to review. Mm. Yeah, totally. Totally. Don't so if you've enjoyed this podcast, all the links are in the description box below the video. You can reach Paul on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. I put, I put, <laughs> I put the links down there for the books. Any other links you'd like us to include, Paul? No, that the, Twitter's the only one I, I okay. use. Uh, that and I've got the Ferris Conspiracy website. Okay. I've had that for twenty years. Mm. I got that as for the first 
10,000 pound I paid to get that done and dusted. Yeah. That was my first try. Wow. wow. And the reason why I got it was because my mum, when I used to take the kids down on a Friday, and then on the Saturday, and then you get the, the Sunday newspapers, she'd be crying, reading this newspaper. And I'd say, Mum, what's wrong? She'd slide it across to me and say, tell me that's not true. And I'm reading this about me. And I'm thinking, what a lot of bollocks that is. Right? And, and it's a case, my mum was crying. So I'd go, all right, I'm going to uh, copy it. It's going on my website. I'm going to take all the keywords out of it, strap it down, gangster, whether a source said this, and then put my view on it. And that allowed me my first strike against them, because they're never going to apologise, are they? But I'm going to take the piss right out of their article and their editor and whoever's wrote it and said, that's what they've fronted, here's the facts. Mm. And I've done it for years, so they've calmed down a bit now, especially when I've got Twitter. Good on you. So Paul's Twitter link will be in the description box. Jen's links are down there as well. She's got her own YouTube channel now. She's interviewing people herself on that channel, so please support her as well. If you do want some Coro, link is down there, 5% discount with the promo code TrueCrime. Thank you very much for watching. Um, cheers, yes, Paul. Yes, come in. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, well, well done. Appreciate it. Well done. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, big hugs. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, brilliant. Cheers. 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 All his life, Johnny Boy Steele has been running, first from an abusive father, then from the rigours of an approved school and a young offender's jail, and finally, from the harshness of adult prison. This book details how the Steele brothers staged the most daring breakout that Glasgow's Barlini prison had ever seen, and recounts what happened when their younger brother Joseph was falsely accused of the greatest mass murder in Scottish legal history. We're talking the ice cream wars there. If Johnny Boy had wings, he would have flown to help his family, but he would have to wait for freedom to use his expertise to publicise young Joe's miscarriage of justice. This is a compelling, often shocking, and uncompromisingly honest account of how the human spirit can survive against almost crushing odds. It is a story of family love, friendship, and ultimately... A desire for justice. So, Scotland's Johnny Boy, the bird that never flew, is available worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Cheers.